This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And um, yeah, we, we've we not escaped the vampire castle of uh, uh, the, the grotto. Q&A 4. Yeah, uh, Q&A 4. Yeah, we weren't able to. We went for like uh, three hours and 45 minutes and we had gotten like halfway through the questions that we set out to answer. So we adjourned and now we're back for part two of the now Q&A. Uh, exactly. We decided yeah, to uh, engage in some self-care and yeah, exactly. not record mm. for six hours straight and record yeah, a new episode de- today. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, we definitely decided to observe some self-care. Uh, the problem is that like in doing that, I had like some time to ruminate on the prior questions like that night, <laughs> like, you know... Because I had just been talking for, like, more or less, like, uh, four straight hours. Like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I was hungry. So I got up in the night to, like, go munch something. Uh, mm-hmm. And, like, you know, I was chilling in my kitchen, like, eating. And I opened my computer and, like, you know, I was confronted by, like, all of these, like, you know, uh, Nick Pizzolatto articles. <laughs> and, like, you know, Mark Fisher's, like, Wikipedia um uh-huh. and uh i found some like truly uh great stuff that like i felt like i needed to uh share to answer these questions first of all like the one thing i found about mark fisher was that prior to his death which admittedly uh is you know tragic uh he uh was planning on writing a book called uh acid communism oh um, yes which uh yes is all about sort of uh reclaiming the uh aesthetics of like the uh psychedelic uh 60s and uh you know the the uh that era for Mm -hmm. positive sort of uh left uh purposes that was uh, you know he was planning this new book um and i guess it was excerpts of it were published uh in the anthology k-punk which is his collected Mm -hmm. unpublished writings it was uh you need to reclaim the uh yeah imagining new political possibilities for the left mm, dope. Uh, uh, yeah i mean uh, given everything that we've so far covered on this podcast that uh, immediately jumps out as like eh, i don't know i don't know if we want to uh, as as aesthetically and uh, i don't know uh 
maybe artistically or libidinally appealing as that sounds there's uh, the i think things, it's maybe like, it's maybe it's very, an understatement to say that like uh, there's a few it's very yeah there's a very there's a few contradictions like, there perhaps yeah uh i mean yeah hmm, i don't know I well mean, it's very well, gen yeah. Well, yeah. Did, well, did you did you get a better read on exactly what he meant? By... I didn't read his uh, actual essays. I didn't like you know look it, into it like carefully. But I think like if uh, we have to watch out for like the uh, condemnatory eye of like the priest or of the the academic pedant, uh, we like you know I think we can also watch out for like the program to kill like psyop um, mm-hmm. as well like the uh yeah. subversive well yeah i mean it, it's uh it it definitely it just kind of sidesteps the dark side of the role that lsd played in the 1960s and 70s which you know i think uh it had much more of an impact i would say as a like disruption agent and a kind of a tactical suggestion that was able to derail the new left movements and kind of like scatter and confuse and like basically disrupt all that energy which then led into perfectly segued into the era of neoliberalism so it's like huh okay so like this drug sparked a kind of cultural revolution that looks basically like it was to varying degrees like managed by the very forces of like capital and empire that Mark Fisher wants to, you know, get past basically the, you know, the architects and enforcers of capitalist realism. And it produced, like we said in the Grateful Dead episodes, like it kind of was the perfect primer or like gateway drug, if you will, towards like the development of the neoliberal subject. Mm-hmm. And yes. so I, I, you know, but I, in some of the things, I guess like, com- like commune magazine, um, and like efflux have played around with these ideas of acid communism um, I just noticed in like this medium article from 2019 by Stuart Mills called what is acid communism um, mm-hmm. he tries to kind of like I guess there's been a lot of debate over like what exactly does it mean and <laughs> at least this this guy makes the argument that uh, that basically acid communism is not a doctrine of hippie communal living and psychoactive drugs the commune and psychoactive substances have a role to play in the philosophy of acid communism, but acid communism is not a valoration, valorization of a hedonistic hallucinogenic culture. In my opinion, acid communism is an evolution of thought following from Fisher's work on the hauntology of culture and capitalist realism. Uh, so, uh, yeah, yes. I mean, uh, so like, like a vanguard basically should be taking the acid to come up um, with new paradigms for transcending capitalism, but they're not really. Uh, well, it's interesting not. that like it doesn't make it. Well, if we're thinking of like you know acid communism is going to be like a, a site or like you know the '60s counterculture is like a site for exploring like epistemological alternatives to capitalism. It doesn't make any sense. It's literally nonsensical. Like honestly, like if you're going to look at epistemological alternatives to capitalism, you would look like to pre-capitalism you know into things like you would look at like uh you know religion honestly like you would look at like not to say that those things are perfect in the same way that uh you know 60s counterculture is imperfect but might have some redeeming aspects you know like uh, uh that exists within capitalism there's something communistic 
about like any of that stuff like uh yeah which i mean it makes sense by say like uh in this same medium article uh the communism element is debatably symbolic simply representing a philosophy that goes beyond capitalist realism and thus into a world that could go beyond capitalism itself i really think like i think if some of the post-left people like were more like engaged with like some of the stuff they would like also reject it because a lot of it is like sort of like uh you know hauntology of course as we talked about in our spirit photography episode that's like deridian you know that's a uh, postmodernist uh, academic pedant stuff you know uh so i almost feel yeah. like that like the fact he complained kind of more or less about like uh sjw's so like i feel like that is why this vampire castle thing has uh you know such appeal to certain people but i feel like maybe the the rest of his work as like k-punk might seem to be kind of airy fairy uh academic uh you know postmodernism uh in a way uh but uh, yeah th- like, this doesn't sound like an escape from postmodernism this acid communism in fact it sounds more uh, I, i'm seeing here in an eflux uh, blog post about it that the there have been other names uh used to kind of express it including get this freak left psychedelic cool. socialism and in the uk acid corbinism how did that work out for you mates uh yeah, you know yeah, like mate. uh um, what yeah. acid bernieism uh you know uh like i you know which i guess i guess there was a uh there was like a symposium uh the the 2018 transmedial festival in berlin had a workshop called building acid communism and workshop leaders gave the audience a series of prompts aimed at quote unveiling and exploring the precise idea of freedom that motivated left-wing activists these questions inquired into how participants experienced boredom whether fashion and style mattered to their political identity and the last time they felt truly free from work among other issues uh, so cool. i mean this sounds exactly like the kind of navel gazy stuff that like christopher lash was like railing against in the early 70s and it is interesting that like like it does I don't know because Christopher Lash is somebody that is also very popular um among maybe a lot of the same people that had been really all about Mark Fisher for the last few years um mm-hmm. you know like I and, and I think like like justifiably so and uh you know uh, there's there, there's a lot uh, I know like zero books is like doing a series like obviously I think like the red scare uh, girls are, are pretty pretty into lash um I read lash in like 2012 I'm not bragging but you know uh, yes. I had a lash phase like like way 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 before all of these people uh in, in the kind of post occupy days um so it's like I'm curious to I, I might have even said this before but it's like curious to watch him having this like resurgence but there also seems to be in a way like maybe not um uh like there are contradictions obvious ones between mark fisher's ideas of like uh acid communism and a lot of lash's ideas about the new left which he was like very critical of uh for Mm -hmm. almost precisely the kind of things that mark fisher is saying that acid communism should like bring to the forefront and center so uh on top of that it's just incredibly vague and i don't know i feel like there's more i feel like there's more like ontological revolutionary ontological potential in exposing the 60s new left acid culture as like an op than there is trying to like embrace like try to salvage parts of it in the woke satanic panic than like reclaiming the radical potential of like the straight satans and uh (laughs) you know uh, like exactly 100 percent exactly yeah Um, 
what, should we contemplate whether the hell's angels have like a tree achieved like true freedom or something like that like yeah, that's where i feel like a lot uh, of that thinking nothing tends to is go. freer from work than being a member of the straight satans and like uh <laughs> you know getting a bunch of lsd from uh, richard owsley and uh you augustus know, owsley and, stanley yeah Oh yeah, Augustus Asley. Sorry, Asley Stanley III. Richard Hunter. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah, Augustus Asley. Or Asley's Robert Hunter. Uh, he sounds like yeah, he gets sucked uh, into a tube in like Willy Wonka's laboratory, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, 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 but, yeah. So uh, is that is that the so he, I think he has something that you know without over centralizing general uh, generations. I think is kind of like a Gen X. That is a common thing. I feel like with Gen Xers is like they're deeply deeply influenced by like 60s and 70s pop culture but they were like so young when they were when it kind of shaped their world and a lot of these more sus things like hadn't come out yet that it's like still a huge blind spot to them that like wait what like the even if they think yeah. hippies are lame which many gen xers do because they yeah. grew up like thought well, it was like I a think boomer Mark thing Fisher used to think hippies were lame but then he like rediscovered their quote-unquote radical potential like as if you know uh he found like some lost manuscript or something yeah i don't know like uh stupid but yeah Yeah, how can Um, you like how can you ignore that like tim leary was like an fbi informant and was like actually trying to do a kind of acid communism honestly if you think about like that weird interview he had with walter bauer where he was like going off about how he wanted to turn on like certain targeted intelligentsia to like you know because like the future the next world war is going to be fought over like the mind and you know we yeah. need to like stay ahead and like the the brain race or something like that and acid was a way to um to sort of like get recruit these like agents uh in like high places basically uh so like you know and that was not like really fundamentally a radical project and it didn't have a radical liberatory effect and you know led to i think it did like 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 an industrial acid like kind of led to corroding the foundations of like actually existing socialism which also is another thing that i think this is something of the whole school of like fisherites like don't ever reckon with and i'm not saying that like oh well obviously they should hold up like you know uh state socialism or marxist leninism in the 20th century is like uh fucking based and awesome and and, you know the best and like why don't they center that but i noticed like even from one of their like uh their their living saints slavoj zizek who actually grew up in a you know capital c communist country seems to like have nothing to say about like his own i'm sorry it's funny because it's so popular these days to talk about one's lived experience like you never hear Zizek talk about like growing up in Yugoslavia and like what his opinion he'd sometimes he'll make these kind of like jokes of like you know like you know kind of like in communist Yugoslavia we joke like nobody ever have bread haha you know that kind of shit that's like kind of annoying and basic like it's like those communist jokes it's like train never run on time like you know uh, (laughs) you know like train is always on time because it never leaves station because it's broken ha 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 you know (laughs) just like shit like really like puerile shit like that and it's like why doesn't he talk more about because also like Yugoslavia was an interesting example that had a much more like hybrid hybridized model of like state socialism than like some of the other countries and also just because like that was the context in which like the 20th century struggle between capital and you know socialism or communism whatever like that's really where 
the action was. That was incredibly important. It informed all the domestic struggles that were going on in the U.S. And it's just kind of like, I don't know, maybe it's an academia kind of thing in the certain schools these guys got plugged into. But it's almost like, oh, well, like we're going to kind of just like ignore that. We're just not going to really talk about like actually existing socialism we're gonna like talk about like up to 1917 and then like to like start again at like 1991 Mm -hmm. and i don't know like i'm i I just find it like i wish there was maybe a little bit more uh maybe like historical diving into like in what ways was like the largest like communist you know superpower basically undermined and destroyed and like you know as a result like why do we live in a world in which like that we do live in a capitalist realism world now um because regardless of what you could say about the cold war era like the 70s there it was possible to imagine some kind of different world beyond capitalism mm-hmm. you know like there i mean even you know larouche was running around in the 70s saying that the collapse of the united states was like imminent you know, probably by the end of the decade <laughs> yeah. or something like economic collapse, basically. And that was like a common thing in the 70s. Like a lot of these, you know, uh, edgy kind of Maoist uh, kind of groups in the U.S. and in Western Europe, like a lot of them did kind of feel like the I mean, it, it's like the the teleological bubble of like the 20th century Marxism hadn't been like popped yet. So it still felt quite, and a lot of, you know, in the Soviet Union, a lot of people believe that, like, well, you know, this is, like, an ongoing struggle, but, like, eventually the the sort of the the mechanics of, the dynamics of capitalism are going to kind of, like, end in our favor because it, it you know, the, the rate of profit will fall, the crises will intensify, and eventually, you know, you're going to win crisis in the Kremlin, and the U.S. is going to, like, elect Ross Perot and, like, withdraw from NATO, and basically, like, you know, you're going to have, like, you know, military dominance, and then, like, there will probably have to be, you know, like, a reverse kind of absorption. Like, America will have to, like, kind of hybridize to become socialist or something like that. But then, you know, the opposite happened. I don't know. I feel like that's all relevant, but, like, I don't get a huge, maybe I haven't read enough Fisher, but I don't get like a a a huge it's very also gen xer like very disinterested in general from like the eastern block and like that's why all these gen x people who are music nerds have no knowledge of like eastern block music like if you ask them about you know yugoslav dark wave or like punk or something like that and like eastern europe in the 80s like they've literally never heard of it and didn't know existed it's kind of i don't know like uh there's a lot of reasons for it but it feels a little bit um there's a little solipsistic kind of vibe anyways um i'm ranting Uh, but yeah does any of that make Uh, sense like like where i don't know like it i understand your frustration um uh, yeah we should address the new questions but i did want to say that one thing that i was doing while i was uh up that night eating was that I searched for this uh, Nick Pizzolatto quote that we had searched for. Uh, it took me a little <laughs> oh, while yeah. to dig it up, but I did, and it did not disappoint, like, including the context of it. It actually wasn't in the Hollywood Reporter article. The Hollywood, Re- uh, sorry, uh, the Hollywood uh, Reporter article has those, like, hilarious pictures of him, like, with his, like, uh, motorcycle and his leather jacket, but it's actually yeah. in a Vanity Fair article that... Yes. Uh, you know, um, the quote uh, that we've, uh, you know, uh, held on to for all these years actually occurred. I found some, like, really annoying things uh, that he said, like, incidentally uh, while trying to dig up this quote. I found one where he's, like, uh, you know, talking about the pathology of his serial killer that he constructed, you know, as part of a rant about uh, how someone criticized uh, 
Cole's monologues, you know, as being a mm-hmm. freshman year philosophy. Uh, you know, mm. he's like, they're actually much deeper and more nuanced and grounded in legitimate scientific and philosophical thought. But uh, yeah, so he's talking about, he literally <laughs> okay. said those words, but okay. uh, I feel like so cringe. But uh, he, uh, he then said like, uh, you know, uh, our serial killer's pathology is wrapped up in culturally relevant symbols, uh, such as, you know, the idea of prayer. One of the necessities of prayer, uh, the prayer pose being the blindfold. I have no idea what that, uh, I guess. I think the the, the victim victim in season one is like uh, a range and a prayer pose, yeah. Yeah, Uh, he says, in order to effectively pray, you're going to have to ignore some very basic facts about the world. Uh, mm. like shut the fuck up, like, uh, <laughs> like, uh, uh, lame, that, like, uh, kind of, uh, you know, very freshman year. Uh, that is big, like, that is very big. Red Nietzsche once energy. Yeah, I realized. Yeah. yeah, he was. Yeah, he was kind of. Well, I guess one of these articles quoted like uh, some Cole quote saying like, you know, some linguistic anthropologists believe that religion is a like a mimetic virus that, uh, and I'm like, oh, you mean Richard Dawkins? Like that's Yo, that's what Richard yeah. Dawkins thinks. Yeah, like, uh, well, but yeah, uh, yeah. On our, by way to this something, uh, you know, to this quote, something uh, really great that I found was that uh, recently in April 2020. He went on a rant on Instagram about how he really wants to write a Batman movie, um, mm-hmm. like begging uh, DC to hire him to write a Batman movie. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he said, Batman's no kill policy is valid and should always remain. He literally sounds like he's on cocaine or something like while he's writing. Yeah, this. yeah. Uh, but <laughs> the policy does not exist because killing makes me as bad as them or some kindergarten bullshit. That never held any water at all. Batman's no kill policy exists because uh, this is it is when he enters into all caps. Batman's uh. real enemy is death. Death is his real enemy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, oh yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, as he says, Batman is a story of how one uh, human saint turned a life-defining tragedy into the pinnacle of human achievement and the single greatest humanitarian crusade the world has ever known. And his money doesn't Ooh. matter; it is merely a convenience. It actually adds to his heroism. Uh, all right. His wealth okay. means he could have done literally anything else than what he devotes his life to. Uh, Batman's superpower is that he thinks of everything, and he has the strongest will of the species. And uh, this is the best part. If he had time to strategize, Batman could credibly defeat God. Um, Whoa. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. That, so, like, wait, basically, I don't know. It's, it sounds like a weird, like, so Batman's, like, Elon Musk who, like, beats up you know muggers uh, i guess um yeah i guess and that makes him even more heroic that he devotes yes. his life to like crime and like it's literally so pathetic like he literally says like hi dc wave emoji dc hi we'll work for uh, free uh we'll work for and, free yeah uh oh, and someone on. in the comments asked him uh what his stance was on the death of the author theory uh and he said like uh here's one on the top of my head in my interpretation, Holmes was the villain, and his true genius was in framing people like Moriarty for his crimes while making the authorities believe he was an ally. Valid, because nothing means anything, right? Words are hollow signifiers meant to be arranged in no real effect other than as fetish objects. My imagination is just as valid as Conan Doyle's. Or is that lousy fan fiction masquerading as critical analysis? Are postmodernist quote-unquote critics just talentless artists trying to act creative? Who cares? They're irrelevant in every way. Uh, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that like Roland Bart is like more significant than Nick Pizzolatto like will ever be, uh, and like his writing is much more substantive and interesting than like any of the like than uh, the Batman movie that we can look forward to where Batman yeah. fights God. 
Um, uh, like it hits him God. with a batarang. Uh, uh, anyway, and I think that's um, not even supposed to be a veiled reference to him, like fighting Superman as like a stand-in for God, but like literally God. Like, I guess, well, you know, if he had time to strategize, he has the strongest will of the species, so he could become the ubermensch, and, like, actually, he could beat God if he had time to strategize, which doesn't make any sense at all, and, like, just shows, like, the plurality of his entire, like, philosophical outlook, and, like, the fact that he's just, like, upset because, like, his parents were religious, and, like, they, you know, uh, said that they had visions. And he was, was he, like, ra- religious, was he raised Catholic? Was he I raised Catholic? I think so, yeah. He mentioned, Probably. I read some of these interviews with him, and he was talking about how, like, you know, he went to these prayer people would say like oh i'm having a vision of archangel michael or something and he would be like what the hell like these adults they control my world but they can't tell the difference between a vision and imagining something you know like whoa like uh, uh, what is this uh, like 2005 like uh, uh, yeah this is um, very uh, uh yeah i don't know uh, that is unfortunate uh, yeah, i feel like it's, uh, you know, it's really yeah there's a lot of cringe uh, i can't but, prove and, it i cannot prove it but i i have this like sneaking suspicion that maybe pizzolato has been like hanging out with peter teal uh possibly Hills. yeah they do have on. common connections involved uh you know they're part of that yeah. circle and you know maybe he sees peter teal as like batman Maybe. Uh, or vice versa. It's incredibly lame that he wrote this, like, rant, including, like, all cap sentences about how Batman's enemy is death and, like, taking a strong opinion about, like, Batman uh, and, like, how he wants to do it. Like, honestly, like, we're going to talk maybe about Alan Moore later. Like, one of our questions is an Alan Moore question. And I think, mm-hmm. like, it's it's really telling that Alan Moore, who, like, created some of the most iconic Batman stories ever, like, now views him as, like, a childish, like, character who's, like, not substantial enough to like like yeah to support like uh, a real meaningful story uh mm-hmm. <laughs> like i think that that is like telling but anyway uh this is the coup de gras and then we can move on to the other okay. half of the questions that we didn't get to last time this is really sure. great this is from the vanity fair article that was written up about nick pizzolato in i guess like you know during the first season of true detective uh, or while he was working on season two, for those from 2015, you know, he, the author obviously is like a big admirer, uh, and he kind of does like a, a Nick Pizzolatto impression. Uh, mm-hmm. So just for context, like prior, he talked about how it's important for him, uh, you know, Nick as a writer to imagine what his characters wake up thinking about, you know? So anyway, mm-hmm. uh, as the crew set up cameras beneath the bleachers on a dirt bike track, Nick retreated to his trailer to punch up dialogue. When it works, his keyboard goes like a Tommy gun. When it doesn't, he sits back and stares at the window. The San Gabriels. The evening wind. Big trucks groaning in the passes. In a few hours, he'll return to his family in Ojai. Meanwhile, he's here, entirely present in this interregnum between seasons. The showrunning auteur a moment before the next moment. You can taste the danger. A hint of mercury in the water. Nick will have to pay for the sin of his success, as everyone pays for everything. He raised the bar too high that first season. People want answers from a show like that. They want to be told what to think and how to live. Of course, a show can't give those kinds of answers, because even a great show is made not by God, but by a TV writer with black pens, whiteboards, takeout menus, and research. Instead of answers, you get reversals, reveals, and special effects. That is, more TV. You feel empty. With time, this emptiness turns to frustration. The better the show, the greater the frustration. In the end, nothing satisfies. There should be a term for that special kind of melancholy that follows the finale of your favorite show. What kind of things do you wake up thinking about? I asked. 
I have to rebuild myself every morning, Nick told me. What's happening? Where am I? I've got to locate myself in time. I wake up raw and have to put myself together and focus and be like, all right, Pizzolatta, where are you today? Are you ready to go? Are you ready to do the things you need to do? So I love that <laughs> quote because it's like an incredibly pretentious way of like expressing something that everyone experiences. <laughs> like waking up and thinking like, <laughs> yeah. okay, well, what do I have to do today? Uh, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, He's got to yes. build himself. Uh, Gotta rebuild. Gotta rebuild himself. Yeah, rebuild myself yeah. every morning. Uh, I gotta locate myself in time. Uh, wow. Are you ready to? Are you ready to go? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> are you ready to go? Are you ready to go? Uh, uh, on to question uh, eight. Finally, yes, uh, I am. I am ready to go. Let's hop on that chopper and yeah. ride on to the uh, to the the second half here. Um, yes, so here we go. I guess I'll uh, I'll I'll read number eight. Um, from Molly Ringwald. Um, I yeah. assume it is that Molly Ringwald. Um, yeah, the uh, actual Molly Ringwald. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I really uh, love welcome your work. Welcome to the grotto. Secret Life of yeah. the American Teenager. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, Riverdale. Yeah. Um, yeah. Breakfast Club, great. Um, uh, okay, what? so <laughs> uh, no, was yeah. she? Um, no, I, she I was, so. but I was, I was, I was yeah, okay. I didn't know, you know, it was a bit. Was oh, a bit. Okay. So, doing a bit. Mm. Uh, doing a bit. Okay. Um, well, you gotta okay, have so, jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Apologies. Okay. Apologies if you've gone over this before, but I haven't heard the whole. I haven't heard the whole catalog, but I'm curious what thoughts, wild speculations you have on the Babylon working and Jack Parsons generally. Thanks. Uh, we definitely well, talked a little bit about him in the Kenneth Anger episode. Um, yeah. Uh, but, yeah. I mean, my favorite theory about the Babylon working uh, is the one that, like, uh, you know, Grays didn't show up until the Babylon working. Uh, and that the Babylon working, like, caused... I think we kind of touched on this in, in the Kenneth Anger episode, actually. Yeah. That the Babylon yeah. working, like, caused UFOs to appear as a war engine and the Grays are, like, interdimensional beings that were, like, invoked by it um sure and yeah. and marjorie cameron who is like one of the participants in the babylon working yeah, the central woman. to it the scarlet yeah. woman she started seeing ufos i forget if it was we talked about it in in the kenneth anger episode but uh i forget if like she saw ufos like right before or right after the babylon working but it was right around that time period of like the late it 40s, was she right? saw them before i believe but she okay. considered them to be like a war engine and then like when they talked about when flying saucers became a thing she associated that with the war engine that she had seen as i recall gotcha uh Interesting. so okay. yeah um and yeah a war engine was supposed to herald the new age that they were all anticipating um yeah yeah there's uh there's there's so much with like parsons and uh l ron hubbard who is also a participant in the babylon working and uh you know they were both in the agape lodge of the oto they'd both known uh crowley at least briefly near the end of his life because he came out to pasadena to set it up and then of course parsons you know uh I believe co-founded JPL um, and, you know, did all this rocketry stuff and then died under mysterious circumstances. I forget if we got into it, but I think there was what it wasn't. There was suspicion that Howard Hughes had assassinated Jack Parsons. Uh, yes, I believe that there was. Uh, that's what Cameron always believed. Um, yeah. That he was somehow yeah. behind it. Yeah. 
Um, and I forget exactly yeah. why, because he was like building. He he was developing contacts uh, with uh, some group that Hughes didn't like. And yeah, uh, well, Jack uh, Parsons had previously worked for Hughes Aircraft. Um, yes, and yeah, uh, and I guess he was accused of removing confidential documents from Hughes and was fired. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, an FBI investigation, uh, assessed them. This is from the same article, the Brian Butler article that I think you can probably mm-hmm. find in our show notes, uh, that we talked about in the Kenneth Anger episode. Uh, the Parsons are an odd, unusual pair. This is what the FBI said, uh, in that they do not live by the commonly accepted code of married life and are both very fascinated by anything unusual or morbid, such as voodooism, cults, homosexuality, and religious practices that are, quote, different. Subject seems to be very much in love with his wife, but she is not at all affectionate and does not appear to return his affection. Deleted. Mm. She is the dominating personality of the two and controls the activities and thinking of the subject to a very considerable degree. It is the opinion, name withheld, if subject were to have been in any way willfully involved in any activities of an espionage nature, it would probably have been on the instigation of his wife. Uh, Uh. But he was eventually cleared of all wrongdoing. Uh, but, uh, he still lost a security clearance and that like was a big blow to him. Uh, and yeah, they, um, then he died shortly thereafter, uh, in that same year, I think actually January, he lost a security clearance, June, he died. Wow. Um, and yeah. got blown up in his laboratory, uh, during yes. kind of experiment. He dropped like a that. vial of mercury fulmate. Oops. Mm, um, oops. yeah. Allegedly. Yes. Uh, yes, allegedly. Yeah. And yeah, uh, so I mean, uh, then of course, yeah, there's the weird L. Ron Hubbard spinoff of all of that, and uh, I'm sure there's so much material we can get into one day when we do a uh, a SC asterisk 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 ology uh, episode. Yeah. <laughs> Just a duck the um, algorithm there. Um, right. You know, <laughs> they are very litigious. Uh, my favorite, my favorite uh, kind of. Uh, curveball theory of the Babylon working is that like exactly nine months after Michael Aquino was born. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Yes. And he himself, yeah. like, didn't he brag about that? And he said like, you know, he had the same swastika of curly hair uh, on his chest that Crowley had or something like that. Uh, he had a swastika like, of curly hair on his chest? That's how he himself described it. Like, you know, uh, I mean, okay, I'm sure that like know. a normal person would just call it like a curly ha- or hair or something or not ascribe the shape yeah. of a swastika to it, to his chest <laughs> hair. But of course, you're talking about Aquino, so he had to, like, yep. you know, uh, go go that route with it. Always um, on his mind. Uh, always on his mind. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. Um. Yeah. So there, there, there's a lot there. Um. I think. Uh. There. And yes, those, those uh, that period. The you know. They. They intersect. Swastika of hair. Yes. Uh. This is what Aquino said in the book of Coming Forth by Night. Sorry, I just found this quote. Collectors of mm-hmm. magical happenstance may take note of the following concerning the persona of Michael Aquino. I think actually shout out to uh some guy on Twitter uh Saturnalia something about the mm-hmm. Saturnalia first pointed this out to us. Oh yeah. Um yeah, because yeah, uh, I They did. They did. Yeah. Yeah, what now. uh yeah, Saturnalia Sund one. Saturnalia Ultimate Survivor Sundown. Uh so yeah, uh shout out to that guy for pointing this out to mm-hmm. us uh into this subject. Uh, collectors of magical happenstance may note the following concerning the persona of Michael Aquino. 
Uh, bear in mind, this is Aquino himself writing. It's hard to say because it's third person. He was born in yeah. uh, 1946, precisely nine months after a working by Crowley's California disciples to create a homunculus per a secret instruction of Crowley uh, to the ninth degree of his Ordo Templi Orientis. He was also born dead, raising the question of the nature of the force inhabiting his subsequently revived body. On what? his chest, he bears the same world swastika of hair know. borne by Crowley and Buddha, and his eyebrows have always naturally curled upward into the horns described in the biblical book of Revelation. Wow. <laughs> he has taken, that's true. The name of the Prince yeah. of Darkness is part of himself. Ra and Set, he who speaks as Set. Cool. Okay. Um, I always wondered yeah. about his eyebrow. I assumed he, you know, used some like beard wax or something to like make no, them that way. But well, I did. We, I also had a professor who had eyebrows like that that would just like grow up. I feel like uh, it does know, happen occasionally. Just lack but... that, uh, you know, eyebrow regulating hormone or whatever, and they just grow <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Wow. Well, okay. Yeah. Well, so I'm not sure if it uh, was. I feel like he would have said if it was the Babylon working, but he was born in 1946, so around the same time as the. I forget when was the Babylon working. Uh, was was that in 40, 45? It was in 46. Uh, but oh. uh, you know, I'm sure Aquino would have said that it was, but uh, it was still his California disciples. Um, you know, precisely nine months after the working. Uh, what was Aquino's birthday? Uh, I feel like it was September, either forty six or forty seven. Uh, or no, yeah, it was it was September forty six, I think. So then it's these rituals. The rituals began in January forty six, so that would be about nine months later. He didn't mention say Babylon working, which I feel like he you'd think he would because it's so famous, but maybe not. Maybe Um, he was winking at you a little bit, like a series of certain rituals conducted by Jack Parsons. That is a very Aquino thing. Yeah, he. You know, real heads would know. What? Yeah, I guess what Jack Parsons' ninth degree Ordo Templi Orientis. Uh, That's what Aquino was was getting. I assume. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> After yeah. Hubbard defrauded him of his life savings, he resigned from the OTO. Uh, oh well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was something about stealing a boat that they he gave him money for, and he like ran off with Marjorie Cameron and the boat. There, there was a whole. They had a whole messy, uh, you know, breakdown basically, uh, a falling out. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. We'll, 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 we'll we'll dive into that uh, world we're later. We're not done with that. We're not done with that topic. That'll come up again. Yeah, definitely There's a lot not. of these subjects where we haven't, like, you know, gone into it just because, you know, the Babylon working as, like, a famous kind of occult topic, like occult Americana, you know? So it's kind of mm-hmm. like we're, you know, we're just trying to explore, like, a slightly uh, less well-trod terrain. Uh, but, like, For you sure. know, we... We haven't done, like, an episode about, like, who is Crowley or anything. We just, like, kind of have brought him up all the time. He's featured so heavily in a lot of our episodes. I don't know if we'll do that, but, you know, we'll, we'll definitely, yeah, you'll definitely get some more content in that, in that vein. You know, this is the general universe that we, that we operate in most of the time, so. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, okay. Um, yeah. So you'd want to move on to number nine? You want to read that? Yeah, word. Uh, sure. I was curious. Oh, this is from Jimmy Falun Gong. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. I was curious about your opinions on Program to Kill. 
I know the Grotto has talked about it, and it was mentioned in the freaking episode. I'm over halfway done with it right now, and I've caught McGowan in some exaggerations, but I still think he's onto something there, reads satanic murder cults and program serial killers. Would love to hear more thoughts on this book and slash or that idea. Um, word. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so definitely you, you... Uh, reasonable that there would be some exaggerations. Uh, I definitely think that McGowan is capable of that. Uh, yeah. yeah. I actually haven't yeah. read Program to Kill. Uh, you've definitely recommended it to me. I will read it when we do our Program to Kill episode. Uh, but, yeah, I think yeah. It, it's worthwhile to do because it ties together a lot of other things that uh, we've already gone through. And it I did read it a few years ago, uh, though I'm a little bit like fuzzy. I remember kind of the overall impact of it. There's a lot of information in it. And yeah, I remember talking it, about it like at the tail end of one of our episodes, kind of going into the idea of like the genesis of like the, the quote unquote serial killer as a phenomena, like the sort of cultural yeah. boundedness of like this, you know, uh, thing. It's kind of like in a way passed on and now we've sort of moved on to sort of mass shooter is more yeah. of the, the, the archetypal figure of of fear or uh, uh, sociopathic rampage. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, Zodiac type person. For Bye. sure. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it, it does tie together because, of course, uh, I don't know, I, I forget if we, we just released, when we're recording this, we just released the, uh, the Laurel Canyon episodes, but I forget if we really talked about how Dr. George Hodel's son believes that he was the Zodiac killer. <laughs> I don't think that we did mention that. Maybe we did. I don't know I don't if that's remember. really like confirmed, but it, he definitely was a suspect. Well, uh, actually, no, he wasn't. He was more of a suspect in the Black Dahlia case. But uh, his his own son uh, kind of went into, and I think Program to Kill and Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon both referenced that. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, that's a uh, well, he was kind of a, more of an uh, old timer that period of the 60s and the 70s and the 80s was just like it it really does stand out as this like bizarre era and then it kind of just stopped and i don't know maybe there's a few reasons you could make for that in terms of maybe like uh i don't know you could say oh greater visibility would make it harder but also serial killers like the narrative around them is that they love publicity uh maybe you could say dna testing made it more difficult but Mm -hmm. I feel like the whole frame of serial killers, I think like McGowan is correct in critiquing it. And he, he hits on some really resonant things. Like it basically like the whole idea of like mind Hunter, you know, that, that Fincher show on Mm -hmm. Netflix was like very kind of unsatisfying and annoying to watch and reminding myself that like there was this like, very like fancy FBI like profiling paradigm that was kind of uh, developed in this period to kind of explain why serial killers existed and what motivated them and all that stuff and I feel like it's so ingrained through like movies and pop culture and media coverage and true crime stuff that we all just kind of like accept it as like oh yeah that's what it was but then if that's what it was then why did it just stop why did it like start I mean, there always have been certain serial killers, like, of course, right? There's Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. There's, like, yeah. certain cases throughout history. Um, Jack the Ripper, I feel like, well, around the time of Jack the Ripper, people treated it as something relatively unprecedented or strange. You know? Sure, uh, sure. Yeah, I mean... And, uh, you know, the, there were these, like, 
kind of moments, like these big kind of aberrations. But you didn't have kind of like a whole like uh, litany of serial killers roaming the country, as somebody in the grotto said recently. You know, the uh, the Riders on the Storm song. You know, there's a killer on the road. His brain is squirming like a toad. I guess that was a reference to some serial killer in the 50s. But it's like, I don't know, just to, just pointing out, like before MK Ultra started, there were very, it was incredibly rare to have serial killers. Of course, that doesn't mean, cor- you know, causality, but also like when the Vietnam War started. And that's a big point that McGowan makes. Um, and actually, just like uh, tangentially to that, I just recently watched the like Netflix miniseries about Richard Ramirez, the night stalker. And I feel like there is a part of his story. I think McGowan goes into it and programmed to kill, but pretty much gets like glossed over in this like very highly produced kind of salacious, uh, you know, docu series. And that is that like one of the most important people in Richard Ramirez's life when he was a teenager was his older cousin who had gone to Vietnam and was a green beret involved in the Phoenix program. And then he came back to, I believe, Texas, and he started showing young Richard all of these Polaroids of the horrible shit that he was doing in the Phoenix program. I mean, we're talking like torture, you know, mutilation, rape, like all the basically the whole litany of like the horrible things that Richard Ramirez would end up doing because he would like he would he would switch up methods of killing. He would rape people. He would like molest children, but then not kill them and then kill other random people. He was like all over the map. He was almost like trying out every king. And he was also uh, a very avid devil worshiper. So another L for the uh, false memory syndrome foundation or whatever, Uh, or just people being the satanic panic. Like this guy wrote six, six, six on his hand when he went to court and dressed uh, up like, right. So he was a, an acid communist, I believe. Um, Yes, he was an acid. Um, communist certain, certain uh, radical uh, revolutionary potential for imagining new possibilities of elsewise futures uh such yep. as the future and of being having your blood sucked um yep i remember reading uh something maybe back way back when we were doing our aquino episodes in the beginning that at one point somebody relayed a story where richard ramirez traveled up to san francisco and started hanging around the house of Anton LaVey. And I think he, like, uh, approached him one day, and, like, Anton LaVey, I believe, kind of recounted this. And, of course, you know, big grain of salt. Hard to trust what that guy says. But he does say that, like, basically, Richard Ramirez, like, showed up and, like, was kind of creepy and, like, really wanted to meet Anton LaVey because he was like, you're my hero. Like, I'm a Satanist. Like, I <laughs> want to, like, w- I want to, like, work for you or something like that. And Anton LaVey allegedly kind of, like, shooed him off and just thought uh, he was, like, weird. And it, I guess that would happen periodically with him. Of course, Ramirez did go up to San Francisco and uh, hung out in the Tenderloin uh, for a while after st- things got too hot in L.A. Um, but, like, y- you get a lot of combinations in there. So even though he wasn't a military veteran, his cousin, like, came home and basically, like, taught him the Phoenix program. Uh, that's according to kind of the, the official narrative and kind of, like, inspired this really dark thing. And then he started experimenting with LSD and Satanism and then just exploded into this, like, ridiculous uh, crime spree all around L.A. And, you know, uh, like, at trial, he kind of, like, dressed up like like a rock star. You know, he had these, like, big big sunglasses and, like, wore all black 
and would like laugh and stuff like during the trial and uh i think he died he died of cancer in jail uh i forget if he was on death row. i think he was on death row like waiting but like that story it's kind of like well okay so like wait like that doesn't happen anymore now we have mass shooters and i think as we were also talking in the the grotto the other day like there was that recent green beret mass shooter in rockford illinois who just for kind of apropos of nothing just started open fire on some people in a bowling alley uh and shot five people killed three all older men and uh then got arrested and it's interesting you know the spectacular effect of both the serial killer phenomenon and the mass shooter phenomenon like they're so seamlessly exploited by the media uh, basically to gin up this like fear reaction and terrify people like that comes through very clearly in, in the Richard Ramirez documentary is like people in LA were like kind of freaked out because like it's just he's a sicko like I mean he even looks like the the sicko at the beginning of Cobra who starts okay. blasting people in the grocery store like you know and he is kind of a hero of the new world if you think about it but like mm-hmm. the the randomness <laughs> of the violence and everything and like not being able to ascribe a normal kind of causality to it it's just a guy who's like fucking sick like that really fucking freaks people out and now there's like the more modern thing of like there's a sicko like on 4chan who's gonna get all go insane and then he's gonna get an AR-15 and run to like a school or a public place and then uh kind of do all their serial killing in one spectacular fell swoop and then probably get killed by police but like you wonder you know I think the the article is about that like bowling alley shooter he was a green beret sergeant uh like 37 years old and, you know, they said, oh, well, it seems he might have been suffering from PTSD. I guess he'd done multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan and had just gotten back like earlier this uh, earlier in the year from a tour in Afghanistan. And, you know, is that a case of, you know, one of our uh, one of our Rambos like malfunctioning mm-hmm. uh, from combat stress and like all the fucked up things they've had to do over the years? Uh, or is like it something a little more going on like like he's literally malfunctioning because he was like yeah i don't know conditioned or programmed to kill and like Mm -hmm. it i don't know but it did seem i think somebody pointed it out the other day that you know some of these cases get uh they get blown up and they basically get converted into like fear porn and then other cases are like oh damn that was tragic and then like the media doesn't talk about it so like that was a case where the media did not jump all over it and make it like a thing about gun control or a thing about oh was this guy like a maga QAnon maniac like they didn't add anything to like politicize it it was like ooh shit like one of our special forces guys like snapped like let's 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 like shut up about it like let's just report it and like move on like uh we're not going to do that whereas you know something else would get like uh well like i mean he killed almost as many people as like i mean i get it's like kind of different but like the capital storming and things like that like just the level of like that's being treated literally as as 9-11 yeah but like five people died in this like five people got shot three died uh, but it wasn't, you know, uh, folded into any bigger narrative to kind of like push for anything. Well, yeah, norms, so. norms were uh, violated, I guess, whereas it is normal for there to be like a mass shooting at a random like public gathering place. So, uh, 
I don't know. Yeah. Uh, dem- democracy so. was attacked. Uh, yeah. So. Have you know. forgotten yeah. how we felt that, that day, day. <laughs> with our You're heroes under fire? I yeah. really intended to do like a. <laughs> I've intended yeah. to do like a super cut with like AOC's live stream, like and uh, that song, <laughs> uh, and uh, like the no. bringing the urn out to the Capitol. Uh, no. You know that big ritual they had. Uh, I watched yesterday. Um, um yeah, was what was, was the uh, urn? The was it the urn of the Capitol Police? Well, they kept officer? saying they're bringing the remains uh, of of Officer Sick Nick uh, to <laughs> uh, to lie in state, and and every other time I've seen like a president or whatever, like they pulled up with a huge hearse, and I assume they're gonna like bring his body like in a coffin to like put it out there. And I don't know, it just, it almost like, it, it jarred me a little bit when they kept talking about like his remains are going to lie in state. And then they did this whole kind of, you know, military ritual, like opening up the door and like, ah, I see they're removing the remains now. And they just pulled out like a tiny little urn and then like marched up the stairs. And I was like, oh, so they cremated him already. Uh, and I, you know, I've seen other things that are maybe there, there's been a little fuzziness over like, they, do they have video evidence of him being hit with a fire extinguisher? You know, is the kind of thing that if the, if Nancy Pelosi gets her one six commission to look into this, like, are they not going to be able to do like a second autopsy on his body now because they cremated it? I don't know. Just like, uh, there's, uh, yeah. Um, but that's a whole nother thing, but it's just the uh, whole ritual of it was so big and then, you know, other things can happen and we just kind of like don't talk about it. So I think the selective, uh, the spotlight that gets put on some of these crimes can really, I mean, I, I suppose maybe you could say there still are serial killers. It's just the media doesn't care about them anymore. So they don't get reported. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's yeah, more likely that this was a phenomenon that. Yeah, this is a phenomenon yeah. that probably, uh, like, for example, like you know, targeting like homeless people or something like that. I could see that being yeah, a thing I mean, that would fly under the radar. Yeah, I mean, there was one guy recently who was like a targeter of gay men, like in Canada. I want to say, like that, I remember hearing about. Like, oh, similar. yeah, that guy, yeah. The, the guy who had the whole documentary uh, where he like tortured cats and things like that. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I think uh, that yeah, guy. I, yeah. I, uh, yeah. I, uh, yeah. I mean, that's a common serial killer behavior. So, uh, was it the Green River Killer? I think that might have been. That, that you know, was older. That was guy. older. Yeah. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh, I don't know why. I mean, there's a lot there. Me, then the whole cult, the, yeah. the Hand of Death cult that got paramilitary training in the Everglades that Henry Lee Lucas talked about. Like, mm. that's very interesting and bizarre. And uh, there was, like, the Matamoros cult down by the border that abducted, like, a college student in the late 80s and then uh, sacrificed him in, like, a satanic, like, drug ritual. Um, they were like a drug trafficking gang that had like a shamanic, uh, like a sketchy, like shaman leader, uh, very like Mandy style almost. And, uh, when they finally raided their ranch in the middle of nowhere, they found, I think like several dozen bodies or remains of bodies or things like that. And they were basically abducting and sacrificing people, um, yeah. to some They're, God, sh- you know, to the devil or something like that. Uh, hmm, interesting. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, that, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't. That'd be a good one to go into. There's some good old yeah. school, like late '80s journalism about that because that was a real 
kind of thing where they're like, yep, there's a satanic cult, they're trafficking drugs, they're kidnapping people, and <laughs> yeah, they're sacrificing yeah. them, folks. You know, that was a real real thing that happened. Uh, and you have to imagine it probably wasn't the only case of it happening. But, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's big military links between, all, like, Dahmer was was U.S. Army in, uh, in stationed in West Germany. Uh, there's a number of other serial killers that were in the military. And... Uh, which, I mean, was kind of more common back then, but still, uh, you know, uh, McGowan's thesis is that, like, the Phoenix program was brought home. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very compelling, uh, whether that was, like, directly brought home consciously or if, like, training millions of young men to be, like, uh, cold-blooded killers and then bringing them back home where there was like joblessness and you know they were they all had ptsd there definitely was an explosion of violent crime you know starting in the late 60s as you know people would go over there and then come back i think that definitely had like an impact on it but uh i don't know i i kind of want to like reread it again and do a little more research to really like flesh that thesis out but it's intriguing Mm -hmm. yeah uh i guess the guy who i was thinking of was the uh uh, he was named Bruce MacArthur. He was a Toronto serial homicide, uh, you know, perpetrator. Um, hmm. A 66-year-old self-employed Toronto landscaper. So that was pretty recent. He was arrested on January okay. 18th, 2018. So, hmm. uh, yeah. But still still a, still a boomer, you know? Yeah, still a boomer, true. Yeah, Like, all these I serial mean, killers have been boomers or older. There definitely I think for was, the like, a part. golden era of serial killers. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, yeah, there's a... I, I feel like there is definitely a certain cultural aspect to it where, uh, you know, what's in vogue at the time. Like, now, like, for if you're going to be a Zoomer as, a, as someone who's going to kill multiple people, you're going to want to do, like, yeah, Brandon Tarrant-type thing where you're going to live stream mm-hmm. some kind of mass shooting that's going to make the most impact. Um, yeah. yeah, it's interesting because I feel like there's a lot of like serial killer media. People are still very fascinated by serial killers, but yeah, maybe to people who have like these sort of sadistic tendencies, like being a serial killer doesn't have the same appeal. I don't know. Uh, or maybe they're just, yeah, maybe it's the same thing where they're still around, but there isn't the same attention to them. Um, you know, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, it, it might really have something to do with the fact that like it, it's, it's harder and harder to actually do that and like get not get caught nowadays if you're trying to stretch it out over years or something like that like your your odds of getting i don't know caught after like one or two murders uh and i don't probably a lot harder to like play the games of like zodiac like sending cryptic letters to the Mm -hmm. to the media and stuff without with all the forensics and electronic surveillance they have nowadays it's like oh okay like this person got abducted on the street corner like let's watch the surveillance cameras all day and like you could get a much easier line on it and uh like once i mean it took a while for them to get ramirez but once they got i forget how they did it it was like a very weird roundabout way where they like got like kind of his name and his face and everything and then once they did it was actually um it was like residents of east la that saw him like running through the streets uh, because he came back to la and saw like his face everywhere and like freaked out and started running through the streets and uh he ran through like a latino neighborhood and people just started beating the shit out of him (laughs) Mm-hmm. And, like, almost were about to, like, lynch him, basically, until the cops showed up and, like, took him away. 
um so you know great job lapd uh yeah, didn't even technically great. catch the night stalker yeah so uh okay well yeah we'll we'll come back yeah. to that uh at a later point we do a, a deep read, yeah, whatever definitely we could do a program to kill episode <laughs> i was reading recently that uh david berkowitz i think it was david berkowitz yeah uh, who yeah. was the son of sam uh or uh, uh killer mm-hmm. um said that he was uh you know part of some satanic cult and that actually yeah that's a huge group supporting him Uh, that's a huge thing is that he was part of a cult and that he was like one of several people i think he said that for years i think maury terry the guy who wrote like the ultimate evil i think he did a lot of like uh reporting or research into that and was pretty Mm -hmm. convinced i know like ed opperman is uh very convinced of that and believes that the process church had something to do with it Mm mm-hmm Yes. That's another thing I'd have to I want to read into more because I don't find it unconvincing that the process church is very like spooky and weird and pops up in like yeah. random places. Definitely. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I wouldn't wouldn't rule that out uh, either. Um, and uh, yeah. So should we move on to number 10? Yes, I think so. Yeah, 10 is substantial. Real this is a big one. Yeah. you want to read that one. Sure. Okay, so this is from uh, a good flying wren, uh, new addition to the grotto. Yes, uh, welcome. welcome. Um, First time questioning. Yeah. So uh, they wrote, for the Q&A, while doing research on Hollow Earth stuff for a book, I noticed that there was some real weirdness going on with the meme post-World War II, where the narrative morphs into underground Nazi UFO bases, largely thanks to the, quote, secret diary of Admiral Byrd. That is uh, interesting. His name is Byrd, like the Byrds, mm-hmm. the band. Hmm. Uh-huh. B-Y-R-D. Yeah. Hmm. Or Robert uh, Byrd. Or Robert Byrd. Uh, that is a glorious yeah. hoax. Created by a real weirdo in rural Missouri who for some reason utilizes the logo of the Thule Gesellschaft on the cover. You get neo-Nazis and Holocaust deniers furthering this narrative, which then begins to shift from Nazi UFOs to reptilians and greys in deep underground military bases as the Phil Schneider, Paul Benowitz, Dolce base mythos is cooked up by Air Force OSI. So the question is, what the fuck is going on here? Why are there seemingly post-war Nazi elements spreading disinfo about underground bases, basing it on earlier Hollow Earth stuff like Vril, but with a new twist? 
What's the possible perception management angle here? As a possible angle there, I was also struck by the similarities between Phil Schneider's Space Age story and ancient stories of Katabasis, where a perilous trip to the underworld is taken in order to rescue someone or obtain secret knowledge. Mm. Yes, uh, there's definitely an aspect to that, and I think that we kind of talked about this a little bit, or the... Uh, sorry, I'm just addressing the second portion of the question. Uh, in our Bovatsky, or in a recent Reptoid episode, we talked about uh, you know Bovatsky's fascination with underground complexes uh, and tombs and things like that, and uh, the association between this and uh, the occult, and sometimes how uh, serpent beings of various uh, mythological strains are said to re- inhabit these things, and they've definitely been connected. Yeah. Uh, in that way with some of this mythos uh, and uh, that, that I think definitely has a relationship with the Phil Schneider stuff. Uh, it will be interesting to go deeper into the, the Catabasis stuff, but maybe uh, as to the first part of the question, yeah, I actually did read the secret diary of Admiral Byrd, who was a real person, but I don't mm-hmm. necessarily think the secret diary was authored by him. The guy that they're referring to is the, the guy who uh, did the sort of flight uh, over the North Pole, or so he claimed. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's it's disputed uh, that he actually did uh, reach the North Pole and South Pole by air, as he had claimed to do. But this uh, sort of secret diary was uh, disseminated where basically, yeah, he go- gets there and he encounters uh, these beings within the Earth uh, in uh, flugelrods, I believe. Uh, and they basically mm-hmm. speak German, like these sort of masterful oh, okay. uh, entities. <laughs> uh, yeah pretty much like they're you know and they're uh teaching him to sort of how to uplift his race and uh giving him sort of warnings uh so yeah it's clearly sort of like uh nazi aligned uh wishful thinking uh you know that Mm -hmm. there's this uh advanced uh germanophone uh civilization Mm -hmm. living under the north pole so you can see how like yeah uh this idea that i guess now people who are uh maybe anti-nazi or concerned about like the deep state or whatever thinking they're in league with nazis uh, and their evil secret bases you know might subscribe to there definitely were uh there was a promotion of this uh by people who were partial to the nazis and whatever you think about the hollow earth stuff it definitely is true that the nazis did build maybe not at the south pole or the north pole but, uh, you know, they did build in South America, for instance, like secret underground bunkers and things like that to hide uh, mm-hmm. in the event of, you know, having to escape Germany, etc. So, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, it's uh, uh, in a way like that's a permutation of, of a certain reality. Um, yeah, I'm trying to look up the secret diary now to see if I can uh, find some some choice cr- quotes because i definitely remember them talking about the flugel rod and uh you know he met with the master uh of these of these beings and he talked to him uh about you know his concerns about uh the human race and and things like that but you know it's obviously going to be a little bit difficult to find on google because it's uh shadow band suppressed knowledge um <laughs> it would be good to dig up a uh uh, a key quote yeah it is interesting because i do also on our recent episode about reptoids which touched on the sort of deep underground military based stuff there was yeah. this a weird aspect of uh david ike's recounting of his trip to of the united states uh for like 15 key days where like so many people were coming up to him and talking to him about these reptilians and these secret underground bases 
you know, it's, it is unusual. It almost seems like there is some kind of like aspect of, yeah, disinformation, uh, about these underground bases or, you know, but maybe there is, yeah, some kind of ritual component to it, or, uh, there's some sort of, yeah, uh, ritual aspect to this very circulation of these stories, uh, and that like by spreading the, the belief or perpetuating this idea, you know, like, uh, even in Kathy O'Brien's sort of tale, whatever you, whatever, however you appraise the, the reality of this, um, she kind of does raise the interesting idea of, like, the alien motif in, mm-hmm. uh, the sort of holograms used by, uh, H.W. and his whole entourage of, uh, fellow Cabal members, uh, you know, it does sort of raise the question, uh, David Icke's take is simply that, his explanation is simply that, well, they are reptilians, uh, but it's interesting to consider if they're not reptilians, what is the motive for perpetuating this idea of reptilians uh, or of this sort of secret underground race? Um, what's the sort of fascination with this? You know, uh, there mm-hmm. might be something to it in the same way that, you know, there's an appeal for Aquino, who we were just mentioning, to saying like, oh, you know, I have this swastika of hair just like Crowley, you know, maybe there's a certain appeal to to people uh, who are invested in these types of ideas of the hidden civilizations in the Vril. Uh, maybe there's a sort of duping delight or uh, occulted meaning and sort of perpetuating these stories, kind of a winking aspect to it. Uh, it's it's possible. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think know, I, I feel like that's a lot with the themselves in this way. Yeah. The post-war um, Nazi kind of mind war uh, disinfo stuff. Like it does feel a little bit like they're they're playing with us all because uh, whatever they're doing is buried well enough and protected by the right people that it's not really going to be discovered, whether it's UFOs or underground bases. Yeah, I mean, you'd almost think that, like, all the stuff about... I mean, I guess it would be, uh, assuming that there were no reptilians or secret underground bases, you know, it, it would be sort of it would... Or if the bases were real but the, the reptilians weren't, all the stuff about that would maybe... Although I guess maybe because of the ridicule, the air of ridicule around that stuff, maybe that would sort of shitcoat the entire thing. So that's one aspect uh my initial thought was like well that would just create more suspicion rather than a full cover-up but of course we know that that's not really how these things work and a lot of the time you know this sort of misinformation or the disinfo clouds can well uh, out the whole yeah area, you know? yeah when you have you know freemasons like peter lavenda running around like supposedly telling you the real story i think maybe they could rest a little easy that you know the real story is not actually going to get out yeah the, whatever's going on with those secret machines of the k is not going to be uh yeah, fully divulged and they can they can let a little air out of the balloon with people like that like tom DeLong and uh you know other uh other things like that but i mean the hollow earth thing you know it it is like a lot of other things we've talked about in our like cryptid episodes like it is a kind of a a transcultural, transhistorical phenomenon that popped up yeah. in nearly every culture. Right, so, and you know, like, the idea know. of the hollow earth, I think, is in itself kind of uh, arguably a misrepresentation because, well, like, some people who might be described as being hollow earth people or who might be uh, concerned with the existence of deep underground military bases or with 
races, secret races existing on the Earth even, or things like that, they might not necessarily believe that the Earth itself is, like, hollow, you know, that the Earth is, like, a wonder ball or whatever with, like, a yeah, yeah, yeah. side, you know, like, they... But uh, that there's, like, tunnels. Like, yeah, exactly. Which there are, <laughs> which there yeah. are. Like, there are, like, vast cave systems. And caves, of course, have always had, like, a esoteric or sort of mystical significance you know the i mean think about the allegory of the cave you know yeah (laughs) exactly you know or the seven sleepers uh in the cave uh you know so the the cave dragons often dwelt in caves yes of course uh you know which uh, i guess lots of big animals do uh yeah, I guess they also, you know, uh, they dwell in the hard-to-reach places like mountaintops, but caves also could be in, in mountaintops. You know, they're obviously ca- hermits might might dwell in caves. You know, uh, yeah. There's uh, uh, cave Bigfoot. Paintings, I'm seeing uh, here you know. in the uh, in the article here, just on Wikipedia. Uh, you know, there's a lot of Bigfoot overlap with uh, yeah, the article on what over the years. Uh, uh, Hollow uh, Earth. Oh, Hollow Earth, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, he could yeah. live in uh, caves, uh, for sure. Michael yeah, Grumley, who is obviously. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, of course. Ca- yeah. You know, in Kandahar, in the, that's why the, the U.S. government is going into the caves and blowing them up, is to yep. get rid of the giants. Um, yep, that's yes. right. Um, um, and, yeah, so who knows what's going on with the... I think we can assume that maybe there's, you know, there's a bit of fuckery, just like they're doing with yeah, UFOs. Yeah, Phil Schneider, I would like to do a full episode maybe on him, because he's very interesting. Uh, yeah. And his whole, like, background, like, he actually, like, his father was a Nazi, like, U-boat commander or something. Really? Uh, yeah. Schneider, huh? Oh, yeah. wow. And, okay, but then okay. he flipped. He flipped, right? Really? Uh, you know, and yeah. Um, well, he flipped to what? The U.S.? The U.S., yeah. Does that really uh, count as flipping? Oh, uh, sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, uh, you can keep but, your repugnant Nazi beliefs. Just come build rockets for us. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, um, okay, but, so inter- I did yeah. not know that about Phil Schneider. Wow. Yes. Uh, okay, it's, son of a Nazi. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, he was a son of, like, yeah, like a U-boat commander or, or something. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a documentary in a book called The Underground, which touches uh, on, you know, Phil Schneider's story and some of his background and the connections to, like, the Philadelphia experiment and that type of stuff. Um, and Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Know, That's another very stuff. weird, weird one that, uh, that I've, I've stumbled across many times over the years and still not really sure what to, uh, to make of it. Um, yeah, but... um, yeah, no, it's uh, definitely a great uh, a great story. And I think that that's part of the reason for its enduring power. Uh, maybe it does have some kind of, uh, you know, mythical resonance, uh, and that's why it's so, uh, uh, it's proved uh, so enduring. But, yeah, I mean, I also think part of it is just this is such a spectacular story of going down and being attacked by this alien, or, like, having a beam burst out from the alien and getting wounded by it, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah um definitely i'm trying to it's what very... was his father's name i think it might have been edgar schneider or something no that, that's uh-huh. not right uh trying to remember uh phil schneider father what was his name yeah i might have to uh read up on that like uh at uh, a later time but i did find um the yeah but he definitely was like a nazi u-boat commander i remember uh, uh very clearly from uh from the underground um and uh yeah i did find this this uh diary this of admiral bird for those who don't know it uh it is interesting uh to 
uh, read some of this. So he, this is like in the, in the form of like a log of his time, you know? Uh, so he says that a thousand and five hours, or I guess, sorry, uh, 10 oh five hours, you know, I mm-hmm. alter altitude, uh, 1400 feet next to a sharp left turn to better examine the valley below. Uh, it is green with either moss. So he's finding like a green valley at the North pole, you know, it should be covered in ice and snow, but no, it's a green valley. Uh, the light here seems different. I cannot see the sun anymore. We make another left turn and we spot what seems to be a large animal of some kind below us. It appears to be an elephant. No, it looks more like a mammoth. This is incredible. Yet there it is. Decrease altitude to 1,000 feet and take binoculars better examine the animal. It is confirmed. (laughs) It is definitely a mammoth-like animal. Report this to base camp. Uh, 10.30 hours. Encountering more rolling green hills now. The external temperature indicator reads 74 degrees Fahrenheit. Continuing on our heading now. Navigation instruments seem normal now. I am puzzled over their actions. Attempt to contact base camp. Radio is not functioning. 11.30 11.30 hours. No. Countryside below is more level and normal, if I may use that word. Ahead we spot what seems to be a city. This is impossible. Aircraft seems light and oddly <laughs> buoyant. The controls refuse to respond. My god! Off our port and starboard wings are a strange type of aircraft. They are closing rapidly alongside. They are dish-shaped and have a radiant quality to them. They are close enough to see the markings on them. It is a type of swastika! This is fantastic! Uh, no! Where are we? What, what has happened? What? I took out the controls again. They will not respond. We are caught in an invisible vice grip of some type. Our radio crackles. This is at 1135 hours. Our radio crackles and a voice comes through in English, with perhaps a slight Nordic or Germanic accent. The <laughs> message is, welcome, Admiral, to our domain. We shall land you in exactly seven minutes. Relax, Admiral. You are in good hands. Um, um, so, yeah. When, uh, was, when was that allegedly written? Um, this was allegedly written in 1947. Um, uh, but when it was actually written, uh, like, I don't quite know. Uh, so after World War II, so he allegedly in 1947, uh, had this, where, where was he, what, where this happened? North Pole? Yeah, it was the North Pole. Okay. Um, did this guy, did Admiral Byrd actually like do an expedition over the North Pole? He did, he did. And he actually did discover like some stuff up there and it's disputed whether he actually reached it, although he claimed to, but I don't think that he ever said anything like this, like publicly, you know, this is the secret diary that has been disseminated by who knows who, like this is obviously and attributed to him. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. So he sounds um, like a Nazi psyop to me. It's definitely a not like you know definitely the person who wrote this was uh, n- partial to to the Nazi uh, view of things. Um, yeah, the fact that like and, an Anglo or like American like admiral would see like a flying saucer with a huge swastika on it and be like, oh joy, like well, you know, he, it was, like, I think in saying this is know. fantastic. What he, I mean, it's funny like you know in context like to th- uh, you know. Uh, uh, for us to hear like that, he but I think that uh, yeah. fantastic. He meant like this is like of fantasy. You know, this is fantastical. Yeah, yeah. Like wow. you know, like, uh, uh, yeah. I don't. But, th- but it was odd that he wasn't like, oh, like, damn, like, uh, like he didn't Nazis have a World here. War Two flashback. Like he didn't yeah, have a PTSD exactly. flashback um, or something. Like, oh god. Yeah. Um. Out. Eventually, but he gets an audience with the master. Um, and uh, yeah, he says it's like a Buck Rogers setting. Uh, was there even Buck Rogers at that time? Like, was Buck Rogers a thing in, uh, like, 1947 already? Like, or... It might have been uh, a, a comic book or something, or, like, a... 
you know, something like I that. Guess, I don't yeah, know if it was true. a TV it was, show it yet. Was, yeah, it was exist, it did exist earlier. But anyway, yeah, so, um, you know, uh, uh, a voice greeted him in a cordial manner, and then he, uh, he saw a man with delicate features and with the etching of years upon his face. He was seated at a long table. He motions to me to sit down in one of the chairs. After I am seated, he places his fingertips together and smiles. He speaks softly again and conveys the following. We have let you enter here because you are of noble character and well-known in the surface world, Admiral. Surface world? I half-gasped under my breath. Yes, the master replies with a smile. You are in the domain of the Ariani. Uh, Ariani. The inner worlds of the Earth. We shall not long delay your mission, and you will be safely escorted back to the surface for, and for a distance beyond. But now, Admiral, I shall tell you why you have been summoned here. Our interest readily begins just after your race exploded the first atomic bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. It was at that alarming time we sent our flying machines, the Flugelrods, to your surface world to investigate what your race had done. <laughs> that is, of course, past history now, my dear Admiral, but I must continue on. You see, we have never interfered in your race's wars and barbarity, but now we must, for you have learned to tamper with a certain power that is not for man, namely that of atomic energy. Our emissaries have already delivered messages to the powers of your world, yet they do not heed. Now you have been chosen to be witness here that our world does exist. You see, our culture and science is many thousand years beyond your race, Admiral. But what does this have to do with me, sir? I interrupted. The master's eyes seemed to penetrate deeply into my mind, and after studying me for a few moments, he replied, Your race has now reached the point of no return, for there are those among you who would destroy your very world rather than relinquish their power as they know it. In 1945 and afterwards, we tried to contact your race, but our efforts were met with hostility. Our flugelrads were fired upon. Ooh. Yes, even pursued with malice and animosity by your fighter planes, all because they had swastikas on them. No, uh, he didn't say that, but like, <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, try uh, flying to Soviet airspace with a huge uh, swastika. He said, <laughs> so now I say to you, my son, there is a great storm gathering in your world, a black fury that will not spend itself for many years. There will be no answer in your arms. There will be no safety in your science. A storm is coming. This is the original storm. Really? It may wow. rage on for until every flower of your culture is trampled and all human things are leveled in vast chaos. Your recent war is only a prelude of what is to come for your race. We see he adhere more clearly with each hour. Do you say I am mistaken? No, I answer. It happened once before. The Dark Ages came and they lasted more than 500 years. Yes, my son, replied the master. The Dark Ages that will come now for your race will cover the earth like a pall. But I believe that some of your race will live through the storm. Beyond that, I cannot say. Hmm. Uh, so he had to hmm. return to the service where what this message. Yes, and the last thing that they said, uh, uh, a radio message came through as he was being escorted out of this uh, paradise. And they said, uh, we are leaving you now, Admiral. Your controls are flee free. Off Wiedersehen. <laughs> Uh, so yes, they speak German. Uh, they fly flugelrods with Nazis on them. Uh, with swastika. Are on they them. are they like genetically linked to German people though, or did the Germans seems like kind of it. just like okay, wow, I, I guess yeah. Well, it seems like you know, they're the master race, and yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I mean, come on. I don't know about that. They didn't though interfere I, in any of our wars, uh, but you know. Uh, well, maybe in our lifetime yeah. when well, they're basically the peaceful you know, Nazis that if like you know if the Nazis they broke had, the sword, but yeah, exactly. Been more in touch with like their true nature, like the true nature mm -hmm. of the Aryan knees. 
that were inside the earth then they would have broken the sword but that you know and uh, not like yeah. mass mainlining crystal meth for like 13 years uh and yeah killing like um, in europe uh yeah um, cool. yeah well <laughs> yeah exactly. that like, little uh, flaw yeah there. i mean yeah. they might have yeah it seemed like the ariani and the earth like they were sad like over the outcome of the war because like the enlightened nazis like who obviously like knew more about the advancements of civilization would have won but they're like too sophisticated and too advanced to do anything i mean they tried to make overtures but for some reason uh the barbaric fire plane, fighter planes, you know, fired upon their their peaceful flugel rods. So, mm. uh, you know, mm. well, yeah. No, what can you do? Uh, yeah. What can you do? Uh, but yeah. I'm, so I don't know I'm who hold wrote on to that. my suspicion about uh, that whole thing. Yeah. Does exactly. that mean that when um, does that mean that when climate change melts the polar ice caps, like uh, probably like late into our lifetimes, that the Nazi bases in you know, uh, are going to be like open for business up in the North Pole? Are they going to have to come um, out and reveal well, themselves? I guess. Um, I guess we just have to wait sixty years, and uh, mm-hmm. we'll see. <laughs> yes. Cool. The catabasis like link is very. I mean, it literally is like a catabasis, like a down going that Phil Schneider goes on, and this also is like a catabasis narrative. Uh, where, uh, you know, but it's also in a way sort of like a, uh, what would you call it? Like an, an abyssus where he's, mm-hmm. uh, instead of a catabasis, he's an, a- an abyssus, maybe like a going up, uh, or maybe a nemesis is going across, uh, it, it would be what it, uh, eh, expedition up from, eh, it works anyway, I'll, but I'll yeah, take so your, I'll take your word it's for half, it. It's half, it's half catabasis, <laughs> half an abyssus uh you know as above so below blah blah but um yeah like uh it, it, that's it's, it's a very uh, uh familiar narrative and obviously like it's uh something that uh is these uh uh spiritual ascension or uh dissension uh yeah. narratives have a lot of appeal like for these sort of real uh people uh or people for sure uh world uh so is this what uh, can't yeah. bot meant when he said that like trump is gonna raise thule up again from the hollow earth um yes i think so um <laughs> cool. but he, well, he, yeah as we know trump uh talked to the as the israeli former israeli like defense minister or whatever uh told us um he, trump tried to do that but the aliens stopped him yeah, the Galactic um, Federation stopped him. Yeah, the Galactic yeah. Federation. Um, I, I do yeah. think it's an interesting inversion of the, the the common theme that, you know, UFOs came down came to visit us after we detonated or we started dropping atomic bombs on each other. It kind of does make a little bit more logical sense that they were hanging out underground and they felt the seismic impact maybe of... I don't know, maybe they have technology that can read radioactivity or something. Seems like it would be, you would notice it more. Um, well, it makes you know, people sense either way, honestly. Like, you know, in that, like, there's not really evidence for either, uh, except yeah, it's a like, coincidence I mean, of the phenomenon exploding. Yeah, from space. Uh, yeah, you know, that's, well, that's true. You know, uh, I think maybe we can go into this uh, in our next question, but I feel like sometimes, like, the phenomenon, well, 
it gets into the idea that like UFOs are like liminal phenomena in a way, and I think that or they're phenomena that has like a you know extra uh, dimensional or like a sort of uh, phenomenal uh, existence. You know, they're uh, I think that the way that they manifest, the way these phenomena manifest, is in some way some way draws upon what people bring to the experience. So when mm -hmm. like you know if in your repertoire is like you know uh an airship captain or whatever then you're gonna encounter that you know uh mm -hmm. it's like these sort of uh jinn you know that are uh manifesting themselves and part of the way they manifest is according to like uh some of the resources or what other like you know what the the witnesser brings to the experience so i think that that's that's really the reason why ufos as such or flying saucers as such exploded at that time because that's what people expected to see because that mm -hmm. is like a an image that was of cultural salience at that time whereas mm -hmm. prior to that you know the this phenomena had manifested like in sli a slightly different language even though like maybe you could say it's the same phenomenon um yeah the flying so, chariots uh, airships yes. like all that kind of stuff okay well, yes and i think yeah. that you could say similar things to like these cults that maybe interact with such uh, beings like uh, that maybe go into the earth to do these types of, of rituals that use caves and caverns in the ground uh, as, as ritual sites, you know, the symbology of their religions may have been different that, uh, you know, may have, uh, you know, uh, transformed from, uh, uh, you know, a language of uh, Nagas or other types of, uh, beings or uh, hyper advanced Aryans or forebears on the earth to different uh, terminology or slightly slightly different terminology um, mm -hmm. but yeah I do like the the interesting the most interesting aspect of this is the sort of disinfo angle to it because like yeah uh, what is the function of Phil Schneider like why disseminate these stories just to shit coat like the reality yeah. of some underground bases that may exist like make it seem crazy to be intrigued by them i don't know like definitely a possibility there have some kind of ritual function to it where like the storytelling is part of this uh act you know like uh it we talked about like the sort of homeric uh you know uh stories of catabasis and things like that there's obviously some kind of at least partially socio-religious function to telling epics and things like that mm -hmm. so maybe sure. disseminating these stories has some function like that but yeah well like also a topic we'll, we'll revisit so yeah absolutely um, but, but uh, um, it's an interesting question so yeah looking forward to is. reading the uh the book uh that uh good flying ren is, is working on uh so definitely yeah, maybe, definitely uh, yeah when the book comes out maybe we'll, we can have you want to discuss it uh if it, it encompasses these themes we'll, we'll see uh mm -hmm. but anyway yeah good luck on that yeah i just uh wanted to confirm quickly uh that it was oscar schneider who was phil schneider's father and yeah he was a nazi u-boat captain uh and he was repatriated to u.s naval intelligence or i don't know wow. if repatriated is the right word but yeah he moved into u.s naval intelligence um Holy shit. and uh yep uh so real strong he, paperclip vibes there yes according to phil schneider he was involved in uh, the Philadelphia experiment, like the famous, uh, you know, disappearing ship thing. I don't know if yeah. you've ever heard of that. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I've definitely heard of it. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty famous. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I just wasn't sure, like, uh, in, uh, you know, how generally famous it was or how, like, you know, much it's, a, uh, you know, in the paranormal universe. But I feel like yeah, there were, like, History Channel I'd... shows on it back in the day. Yeah, I feel like I have seen History Channel shows. And I think there was a movie made out of it, too. Like, uh, there was, yeah. Called The Philadelphia Experiment. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, so this dude, Oscar Schneider, apparently, like, was, you know, involved in developing, like, nuclear submarines and things like that. I mean, Phil Schneider, uh, I don't know how much of this is true, like, but, I mean, you know, it's hard to really say, but he ascribed all sorts of things to him, like, including a, uh, a time variance formula. Mm-hmm. And he described, like, Enochian implants uh or like maybe enochian inscribed implants that were recovered from people that uh during the philadelphia experiment uh the i guess the these implants came out of them um i never heard that part before yeah uh i think that's a uh you know uh something that they they emphasize that phil schneider and uh you know the people around him uh yeah he wrote uh out his dad's uh time variance formula in some of these documents uh there's one ascribed to his father uh talking about the uss uh Fariseth, which was the mm-hmm. ship that you know famously was involved i mean it is interesting that phil schneider like committed suicide under nebulous circumstances and yeah the, the guy who broke the philadelphia experiment committed suicide under suspicious circumstances mm-hmm. and you know, there's all these sort of people uh, in that general uh, orbit who have died under, under uh, you know, it's, it makes you wonder, you know. Uh, I definitely could see that there's For some sure. disinfo angle here. But, I mean, the mm-hmm. Nazi connection, the very paperclippy, as you said. Yes, uh, that so, really jumps yeah. out. I, I would like yeah. to do a deeper dive into the, the Philadelphia experiment and Schneider and all that stuff. Yeah, because uh, I'd like to see to what extent is there corroboration uh of any kind kind of of it and i don't know just get oh the yeah thing. and paul benowitz who uh a good flying wren also mentioned i guess richard doty claimed that he was uh you know feeding false information yeah. to benowitz exactly um, yeah, yeah 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 that, that was a big uh, part of the mirage men documentary it was paul benowitz's uh descent yeah kind of like breakdown uh as a result of richard doty psyoping him yeah, there was some other dude, him. William. Yeah, there was some other dude, William Moore, who said that yes. uh, he was involved in trying to make Paul Benowitz go insane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so. Anyways, yeah. uh, let, I guess let's, he was into the uh, Dolce based stuff. Yeah, we'll move mm-hmm. on to. Well, let's uh, move on. Yeah, we can go yeah, down a Phil Schneider rabbit question. hole for later. We day. will. Um, we should definitely do that at some point, but we'll do it later. Okay, we're, mm-hmm. let's move. Okay. Uh, let's progress to eleven. Don't know what they're thinking, what the f- 
think about john d and edward kelly and the language of the angels interested in john d maybe being a spy slash his sign off being wo7 slash setting up mi6 in a way well as to the last part i don't know i think that the whole uh for one i don't think that his sign off was 007 i think that that's like not true uh, i don't know who first perpetuated that idea i think that mm -hmm. he used a bunch of weird glyphs or swirls to sign his name that could be interpreted like if you squint as being 007 but i think that there was like a more conventional reason why uh you know where ian fleming got that idea uh was he a yeah. spy like yeah was was john d a spy like I, I mean he certainly was like very in with queen elizabeth so in that way he was like a diplomat and like a uh figure um and he was certainly like thought of as spying uh by some uh sure. and he traveled widely um but i mean so insofar as he probably reported the results of his travels and he probably represented the, the interests of the queen i think that someone like christopher marlowe was like more of like a you know a bond type spot like it'd be a more plausible mm -hmm. bond type spy not to say that he truly was like really like james bond but uh still like uh you know well yeah i mean i think sort of that maybe Maybe a more accurate yeah. term would be sort of like intelligence operative for yeah, you could the, call the him, British Empire. Well, he was he was certainly an but intelligence he, operative, and one of the main sources of intelligence were his angel conversations. Uh, yeah, you know, well, like there you go. the the uh, like uh, magical work that he would be doing would be an important source of intel. Like, and mm -hmm. that was at the time like widely believed to be like a legitimate form of like geo strategy uh and mm -hmm. uh you know a, a highly sought after uh resource was the contact with uh you know the occult world um so and that and uh, the language of the respect, angels yeah. i'm i'm like familiar broadly with john d but i'm not uh well versed in many of the specifics so the language of the angels refers to his contact with angels the language of the angels that he's probably referring to is the Enochian language. Um, okay, and, okay, I've heard yeah. of that. Mm -hmm, yeah, so that was come like uh, Edward Kelly was like uh, this uh, interesting like magical figure uh, who John D was very much in with, uh, and uh, he was like a scryer basically, um, mm -hmm. and he helped him to sort of carry out these. Um, conversations with angels actually you know for those uh, in the grotto uh a good flying wren uh recently posted his uh his uh showstone setup uh or like you know his uh, john d sort of magic l setup i don't know 
if you go through the grotto, you have to scroll back a bit to see it. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a sort of modern day version of this was posted. Basically, what they would use for this would be uh, basically a crystal ball that they call the showstone. Um, so D and his scryer, uh, through the sort of mediator uh, of him, uh, Kelly would uh, give voice to the messages of the angels while they were looking into these showstones. Um, and uh, so uh, that would sort of produce these, these important uh, messages. Uh, and the a- visions of the angel would appear in this kind of crystal ball um, mm-hmm. that they were looking into. So, you know, I think the, the device of the showstone is very interesting because that kind of shows how, and you can see this idea of the crystal ball like in uh, contemporary uh, plays and things like that, you know, especially in travel literature. The idea of the crystal ball like is very salient and, and often is used to kind of uh, co- uh, collapse distances or allow characters to, to communicate across uh, you know, significant differences. So it's really like they kind of had this imagination of like phones or whatever, you know, of our phones or like a palantir, basically. Yeah, it's basically like well, yeah, the palantir is a yeah, as Tolkien's sort of name for a crystal ball. Um, yeah, and so they sort of saw this, you know, or in the Wizard of Oz, you know, they so they saw this crystal ball, uh, uh, but obviously that has a has a uh, historical precedent or uh, you know uh, something that was uh, uh, an idea that had circulated like in actual uh, medieval and and, Re- and Renaissance times. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, this is something that had a lot of salience uh, for for Elizabethans. Uh, they they really you know were fascinated by the idea of the crystal ball, and it's you know the way that they would think of using it a lot of the time was similar to how we would use phones, like that they would allow you to communicate over great distances. But uh, in addition to that, you could also talk to spirits and angels. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. Uh, Which I mean, article, I don't know, today, yeah. like uh, on the internet, like yeah. you, know, you could be talking mm-hmm, to a bot. True, it's yeah. a, it's, is it a daemon? I don't know. You yeah, know, daemon. So. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I mean, of course, we've talked, I think, in the past about the yeah i think we did recently on our spear photography episode like this sort of occult dimension that uh inhabits a lot of our uh technology the idea of their computers as being somehow haunted you know this is still like yep. a fascination that these can be conduits conduits of, of contact with uh these uh other uh realities um there's an article mm-hmm. that i really like uh, that goes into this uh called shows in the showstone uh a theater mm-hmm. of alchemy and apocalypse and the angel conversations of john d uh which was published in renaissance quarterly in the mid 90s mm-hmm. um okay it's by deborah e harkins uh with two s's interestingly um or maybe it's harkness and they just uh, spelled her name wrong yeah it's harkness uh so yeah, this is a uh, interesting article that talks about, uh, you know, John D. and Edward Kelly. I'll just, uh, you know, read some of it here. So on November 16th, uh, 1582, John D. and his assistant, Edward Kelly, gathered in the study of Dee's home in Mortlake, a small town located southwest of London on the River Thames. It was five mm-hmm. o'clock on a Friday afternoon, and the latest in a series of dramatic events was unfolding. This event, like the events that preceded it and those that followed, involved an extraordinary cast of characters and contained a significant philosophical message. In Mortlake, England's most important natural philosopher was preparing to engage in what was becoming a habitual exercise, conversing with angels, whom Dee referred to as his skull masters, about matters relevant (laughs) to his study of the natural and supernatural worlds. 
Like all dramatic events, the conversations required advanced preparation. In this case, ensuring a degree of privacy in Dee's busy household and arranging a crystal showstone on a table by the window, where it could catch the natural light as it entered the room. Once the physical environment was prepared, Dee and Kelly began to prepare themselves with prayers for divine guidance. They had not waited long when Edward Kelly reported to Dee that a male angel had appeared in the stone dressed in a long purple robe with a triple crown on his head. The angel brandished a, re a red rod, and the earth below him shook. Seven other angels approached him, and the seven angels held a seven-pointed star made of copper. The first angel spoke to Dee with Kelly's assistance, saying, I am he which have the power to alter the corruption of nature with my mm. seal. I seal her, and she is become perfect. I prevail in metals, in the knowledge of them. So, once again, the metal, metallic knowledge and the, the occult significance of this is uh, coming through, as we've talked about so mm -hmm. often. Another angel came forward and told D, I am Prince of the Seas. My power is upon the, wa the Watts. Uh, I drowned Pharaoh. My name mm -hmm. was known to Moises. Uh, I'm just doing a phonetic version of the, the spelling here. Yeah. I lived in <laughs> Israel. Behold the time of God's visitation. After prophecies about the destructive power of the sea, the angel opened his robe, revealing feathers and a golden girdle. At this point, the angel took his hand from the seven-pointed star, and Kelly described how a black cloth was drawn inside the stone, which, which Dee noted is now appointed to be our token, that we must leave off for that instant. Uh, so, uh, yes, I guess the seven-pointed star was the token uh, that they, they received. Um, mm. So after a brief intermission, Dee and Kelly resumed their conversation with the crowned angel and the three angels who still held the star. One of the three stepped forward saying, my power is in the earth. I keep the bodies of the dead. Their members are in my books. I have the key of dissolution. Behold, the bowels of the earth are at my opening. Dee, who was feeling some financial pressure at the time, asked the angel for help finding hidden treasure so that he could pay his debts. <laughs> the angel of the earth wow. chastised Dee for his request replying that the treasures hoarded in the earth were reserved for the destruction of the Antichrist. Instead of worldly treasures, the angel was giving the natural philosopher the power of his seal, which Dee would be able to use to govern the earth and unlock the earth's secrets. Another angel stepped forward, who was the life and breath of all things and living creatures. This angel made birds, dragons, and other creatures appear in the stone, and said, The living, the end, and the beginning of these things are well known unto me, and by sufferance I do dispose them until my veil be run." At this point, the angel took out a vial that contained five or six spoonfuls of oil. Uh, so, subsequently, uh, you know, there's a sixth angel that pulled open his clothes, which were red and fire, that scarcely of man's eye can be beholden, uh, and that burst from mm -hmm. his sides. Finally, the seventh angel spoke to Dee and Kelly, saying, The powers under my subjection are invisible. I will teach thee the names without numbers. The creatures subject unto me shall be known to you. Beware of wavering. Blot out suspicion of us, for we are God's creatures that have reigned, do reign, and shall reign forever. All our mysteries shall be known unto you. The conversation ended with some final words from the first angel. Behold, these things and their mysteries shall be known unto you, preserving the secrets of him which reigneth forever, whose name is great forever. Open your eyes, and you shall see from the highest to the lowest. At last the black curtain was drawn on the stone, and the conversation concluded. So, uh, you know, the okay, whole thing so... of the black curtain. Yeah, like uh, an interesting point of this article is that the symbolic language of these uh, 
visions and the stone were very similar to uh, Elizabethan theater. That they were very much uh, alike to, uh, especially Corpus Christi plays. Actually, there's another dude uh, who wrote a play. What was his name? Uh, I want to say that it was, I think it was William Percy. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he wrote a play called uh, Mohammed and His Heaven, uh, mm -hmm. or Arabia Citians, uh, which is basically like, kind of like a Corpus Christi play, but uh, also like a satire of Islam and of, of Muhammad. Um, okay. And it has very similar language to these uh, angel conversations. But uh, so you can sort of uh, see in this like that the, the earlier idea uh, that we mentioned or uh, around like how the, the language that's available to people or the, uh, the visual repertoire that people have at their disposal is the way that sometimes these phenomena uh, manifest. I mean, assuming that these things are in any way genuine. Uh, or if not, obviously they just—it's the limit of their imaginations, and they're just coming up with what they kind of—you know—they're just imagining things in terms of the theater that they've seen. But you know, yeah. that's an obvious explanation that comes to mind. But also, like you know, uh, the other explanation of uh, in order to imagine it as something that has a real phenomenal reality. I mean, obviously, uh, D believed in it. I mean, a common explanation uh, is that Kelly was like deceiving him, you know, and like say like mm -hmm. uh, egging him on to see these things or saying what was said. Uh, you know, people have done, like, analyses of the Enochian languages and found that it doesn't really have, like, a unique grammar, uh, and okay. that it's, like, basically English, uh, like, like, speaking, that, so. speaking in tongues, basically. Kind you of, know, well, and, it has it, elements of speaking in tongues, and it has elements <clears throat> of just being, like, uh, a bad conlang, where it's, like, not, uh, its own grammar. I mean, it's supposed to be, what Enochian is supposed to be is, like, the most ancient form of Hebrew, and Hebrew yeah. is like a degraded form of Enochian. But yeah. like if you actually look at the grammar of Enochian, it's not really, insofar as it can be reconstructed, it's not really Semitic. So uh, that's, uh, you know, some... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. It has no but... coherent kind of, um, yeah, no coherent root yeah in any known language which would make you think yeah that, that's what i meant by speaking in tongues not so much like the style of it but like just the fact that people yeah. are clearly just saying like shamana shamana mamada babada and it's like not yeah word, you know what i mean like well, sometimes not, it would be like shamana shamana mamada babada sometimes like it actually would just straight up be like that and sometimes <laughs> it would be like you know kind of like uh someone who only spoke english like what their imagination of another language would be you know not okay, that uh, yeah, you yeah. didn't know other languages but you know uh, obviously, like, there's some a element of Latin in uh, Enochian, and, like, there's a Hebrew influence on the characters, for sure. But yeah. uh, in terms of whether, um, you know, this, uh, like, really, uh, like, you know, was a functional language. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that it couldn't be a conduit for uh, communication with uh, other uh, realities or uh within oneself you know in core of nerve sure. or, or whatever mm -hmm. but uh yeah mm -hmm. um, in core of nerve <laughs> yeah yeah yes. exactly uh yeah yeah it's uh well, yeah it's but it's interesting like how much like curtains feature in these things and how uh you know the visions are uh set in places like roads meadows forests mountains streets marketplaces great halls you know the standard settings of like the elizabethan theater um mm. and uh yeah it's uh interesting it's an interesting connection between these sort of you know this occult world of visions and 
the world of media and uh, the sort of uh, inherent theatricality of it kind of goes back to the earlier question well way back in our first part where someone asked you know is there like an like uh, have you ever had an abstract or uh, undeni a non-abstract or undeniable experience with shaitan or, or with jinn um, yeah. and I think that really in a way part of the nature of jinn is that they're always and of angels and of shaitan is that there always will be like an abstract or deniable aspect of one's experience with it you know mm -hmm. like the yeah uh, for sure yeah for um, sure so uh, the, the yeah. them's the rules it seems i don't know why but <laughs> yeah well that's just like how those constant. concepts are kind of def yeah it's kind of like how those concepts are defined in a way you know like uh it's <laughs> sort of like saying like oh well you know can you uh one might say that uh like oh can you see like if you think of a jinn as being like a liminal being if you mm -hmm. ask like oh well can you see a jinn in a way that isn't abstract can you experience a jinn in a way that isn't abstract or deniable like you know uh or experience a gray or something like you know any any of these th creatures that we could yeah. put under the umbrella of jinn you know mm -hmm. uh that's kind of like asking like you know uh well who made god or whatever like god by definition is like the uncreated creator yeah. you know so yeah. then what you're talking about ceases to be god so in a way like part of the way that these things are defined is that there is this uh aspect to them where they exist like in uh some sort of parallel space uh that is a little bit outside the ability of like our standard uh scientific powers to to define you could say you know maybe uh you hold on hope that we'll be one day able to like put the gin under a microscope or something but uh that's uh definitely uh you know uh, uh at one paradigm or one uh uh lens through which to consider these things is that their nature is one that's kind of outside that kind of how Merleau-Ponty talks about like the like art or our experiences embodied beings you know mm -hmm. and certain things can't be understood out from like you know this sort of ideal uh in this ideal sense or as if we didn't have bodies you know some of them uh, yeah. some things can only be experienced in a bodied way so and, and mm -hmm. some of these things are, are is part and parcel the sort of the mystery of them the uh you know the elusiveness and their their liminal quality um but sure yeah sure. uh yeah it is oh, uh yeah and in a way yeah uh in a way like the angel conversations like deal with something that was really common in uh especially early modern science which was like the idea of like a, a symbology and the power of symbology to change the world which is something that i think uh people are less uh, uh, sensitive to now and uh, I think that uh, maybe the point that was raised by Peter Laventa himself I think in, in S.K. Bain's book that like we've mm -hmm. uh, lost our consciousness of, of symbology or we've become symbologically illiterate you know I think there's yeah, some yeah. Uh, there's like uh, or it's been uh, it's been sublimated and kind of like it's been channeled through other things because I feel like symbols do play uh, symbology still plays like a very powerful role in our very like audiovisual culture but it's been sort of like subsumed into like like market forces and i don't know it's like it, it it's it's not taken seriously by like uh you know exactly yeah in the same way it's, anymore uh, yeah. so it's operating in a almost more necessarily occulted way because i mean maybe it is operating in like the kind the the quasi pseudoscience of like advertising and public relations but in those and you know in mass media entertainment like in all those things like there is a certain uh, appreciation for symbolic content basically or like highly charged 
symbols and and uh, or you know ritualized symbols, things like that. But it's kind of been se- segregated from like science proper, unless you're kind of talking about I don't know some kind of very inside baseball psychological research that gets like co-opted by the advertising industry. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, I think that maybe yeah, like this, maybe a psycholo- uh, psychology is like where people might uh, consider symbols to to have meaning, but not like in an archetypal way. I, I wouldn't even think that. I guess you're right. Whereas, yeah, we like, know yeah. we've instrumentalized it and secularized it basically. So it's like, oh yeah. yeah, these symbols do represent things, but there's just like evolutionary reasons for that, and so you can kind of like tweak. Yeah, or the idea of the symbols having. Yeah, the idea of symbols having meaning in themselves, which I think is definitely something that John Dee would have believed in, that, like, certain sigils or whatever, uh, and most natural magicians would, uh, the idea that certain sigils, certain names, uh, things like that, would have inherent power, uh, whereas, like, you know, uh, a, a modern psychologist might think, like, oh, you know, something that resembles, something that suggests sex to someone will have power because it suggests sex to them. Um, yeah 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 the, the like, mechanism you know, is somewhat uh, different but if it didn't then you know it wouldn't you know and it's in their mind you know it's a, a mental thing and i mean obviously the world yeah. of the mental is like very important but i think that again i feel like we talked about this a little bit before but i feel like there's a uh there's a convergence between the mental world and the uh the ontological world you know uh what like uh this of whole course. separation between yeah. like uh our perceptions and how we see things versus how things really are isn't like a, a, a straight uh, a division, but it's yeah, not easy I to think, disentangle. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, and yeah, I think that uh, in these uh, in these angel conversations, uh, you can uh, I mean, really, these these uh, play out in this uh, very uh, potent sy- symbology. And uh, a lot of the time, the angels are given uh, giving signs to John D. As a way to uh, exercise their powers, uh, or as a form of the the philosopher's stone, that's an interesting thing because, especially with the connection to media and the way that these uh, sort of symbol symbolism works, I think that it's it's a very interesting uh, site to explore in terms of that connection. Um, yeah. Because uh, you you uh, you know you can see how these things you know obviously Queen Elizabeth uh, Elizabethan times this is a a period of uh, explosion both in what John Dee was doing and also like it's obviously a famous time of renaissance and uh, uh, the uh, English sort of self-imagination of its cultural dominance you know this is a time of Shakespeare right so uh, like uh, the you know and that's kind of like a British imperial meme in a way like Shakespeare's brilliance and like his Mm -hmm. uh you know uh world historical significance and and power and his mastery of the the human mind I even saw someone like Harold Bloom or whatever say uh wrote some book like uh saying that Shakespeare invented humanity and taught us to have like an interior life and before that like we hadn't or whatever you know like uh which is like really talk about like occultic you know so there's like all like uh you know so I think that that uh and I mean, in a way, this has kind of gotten up to uh, compete with people like uh, Racine uh, or Lobo de Vega, mm. you know, other uh, significant uh, playwrights uh, in other countries. They wanted to have their own version of that. And he became the biggest playwright in the world, of course, because like the British Empire, like, you know, uh, surpassed the I, French I, and the Spanish <laughs> empires. Yeah. Uh, you know, it. Uh, yep. ultimately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, For like sure. uh, that. 
the whole like I mean Shakespeare if you look at the lineage of the theater and the special effects and all that stuff it goes right now to like our modern sort of mediascape and the sort of same magical language that is moving between those two worlds I think is still like very salient today but yeah John D yeah. Edward Kelly super interesting uh interesting super interesting people. yeah yeah we'll we'll yeah. uh we'll, they're on the list uh, to come back to they're definitely so. on the list yeah I want to yeah. definitely do an episode soon about like natural magic in uh like the early modern period uh on some subject like that like uh pick some grimoire to to discuss uh, or a thing like that but Okay, so we we have a we have an eleven B on this question, which I will read from Dudu Darian. Okay, and uh, he also asked, uh, also interested in y'all's opinions on the Book of Judas. I believe he's referring to the Gospel of Judas, which is yeah, one of the Gnostic right, we, Gospels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, right, yeah. I'm like. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I I'm mean, I I the Gospel of I, Judas. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, the like the sort of alternative takes on Judas are closer to the Muslim view than uh, you know the the Orthodox Christian view is uh, often. What what is the uh, Muslim know, some view of, the Gnostic of Judas? Stuff is kind of weird. Well, there isn't like a, a straight up uh, Muslim view of Judas, and there's a lot of like uh, uh, dissent around. Um, what actually like happened to Jesus like especially now uh because you know the more that islamic beliefs in the modern era have uh seen efforts to uh, at standardization or uh, creating like a you know a real short up orthodoxy oftentimes against like the the very present challenge of uh western christianity uh, mm-hmm. you know, Muslims have drifted more and more away from the idea of affirming, uh, the crucifixion. So what the Quran says is that Jesus wasn't crucified, basically, um, that they didn't kill him and they didn't crucify him. So huh. some Muslims take that to mean, uh, that Jesus, like, you know, wasn't put up on the cross. Although the Quran does say that that's how it appeared. It was made to appear that way to them. Um, so some people have taken this to mean that there was some kind of illusion that happened, uh, you know, which, uh, is, is one explanation. And there's also the idea like that, you know, the the somewhat, uh, simpler idea that he was crucified 
it, you know, which maybe is closer to uh, the Christian conception in some way. I think this is what Tabari says, uh, or at least mm-hmm. offers in his in his tafsir as as an idea to uh, Tabari, the sort of famous uh, mufassir and uh, uh, historian. Um, he, uh, yeah, he said that you know he died in the dunya, but like not really, you know, uh, that he, okay. he like in saying that he wasn't crucified or killed. What it meant was that it was not in like his true reality, you know, that he died I in the dunya, but like not really. But many well, Muslims, hmm. you know, do think that there was some kind of trickery involved, and yeah. uh, that like uh, as a result of this, um, you know, uh, so Jesus was never actually crucified at all, and so that gives rise to like a bunch of different ideas that like Jesus had travels after his supposed death and like went to other places. Or yeah. that, uh, and one version of that is that Judas actually uh, took his place on the cross. And it seems, yeah, that it was Jesus, uh, but it actually was Judas. And that, you know, okay. uh, can that can be taken in multiple different ways. Uh, some people have said, I think Simon also, someone who he switched with, uh, or that he had a brother who switched with him. Uh, who may have oh, been James, Simon. James, but, brother of Jesus. Yeah. That's often referenced in the Gospels. Yeah, which people have yeah, thought have like, oh, is that some, is that yeah. like, did Mary and Joseph have another kid? Did he have a twin? Like, what's going on here? You know? Um, yeah, maybe I, I, that's uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very, but right. that actually gets at something interesting about the Gospel of Judas because uh, it, it sounds very similar. What you just described sounds very similar to both the content of this Gospel and also the the. the the one representation of Jesus's life in cinema that is probably the closest to some of the Gnostic ones, which is the last temptation of Christ, Martin Scorsese's film from the eighties. And actually that that's a huge plot point, uh, in it where, uh, Jesus is, he, he enters this kind of like, he almost goes into this sort of like dimensional trans dimensional shift when he's on the cross. And then this little girl who's supposed to be maybe like the archangel Michael, uh, tells him he can get down and like the world is going to see him get crucified but god isn't actually going to make him get crucified he's mm-hmm. going to take him down right. and then he's allowed to like live his life and like uh you know uh have a you know a baby with like uh with mary magdalene and just live like a normal man's existence oh, I uh, but of that course the, like people thought he was crucified i thought that he like got out of it and that was sort of why Things yes. kind of went bad in that reality. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, because yeah. Uh, ultimately uh, the little girl is not the Archangel Michael, but is actually right. Shaitan and actually right. like psyoped him into not getting crucified. And at the very end, you have Judas coming in. And this is the other big similarity to the Gospel of Judas, where basically the big the, the big reversal is that like Judas is actually the best disciple. Uh, contrary mm-hmm. to the normal story, he was actually like the most enlightened and the most loyal. And Jesus basically asks him to turn him in to make the uh, crucifixion happen, to like fulfill the prophecy, etc. And uh, so that you know, there's that great scene at the end where like Harvey, our old man Harvey Keitel comes in and like discovers old Jesus when the Romans are burning down Jerusalem and is like, you know, liar. Like you were supposed, yeah. to, you had one job. You were supposed to die on the cross, you know, like that, and starts yelling yeah. at him, and basically says like, you know, you, but which implies that everyone believed. He also meets Paul, uh, played by Harry Dean Stanton, at one point. He's like preaching about Jesus, and uh, Paul says, you know, he he tries to say like, 
I think he tries to tell him like I'm Jesus and like it didn't happen. I didn't get crucified. And uh, Paul says something like, you know, I don't care. Like my Jesus did get crucified and like I'll kill you again <laughs> if like you get in my way. <laughs> you know, uh, like I don't care who you are. Um, you know, because the Jesus I believe in. So there's like a lot of. I mean, this is all based on a Greek novel by Nikos Kazantzakis, which I feel like came out in either like the 50s or the 60s. So it actually came out before the gospel of Judas was rediscovered in a market in Geneva, Switzerland in 1983. I guess a Yale PhD student uh, stumbled across it. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the basic thrust of the gospel of Judas. I mean, it is interesting. I mean, that the last temptation of Christ has always been like my, probably my favorite Jesus movie. Mm-hmm. I think hands oh, yeah, down, it's got one of the best. Yeah. 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 It really grapples, I think with a lot of things that the other ones just, uh, even like Pasolini's like gospel, according to Matthew, uh, kind of beautiful, but like, I, I don't know. Um, it got pitched to me as this like radical Marxist reinterpretation, but all it was was just like not an airbrushed blonde Jesus. It was just like actually yeah. people that looked like Palestinians like 2000 years ago. So it's like, yeah, I don't know. Except it didn't for really Harvey Keitel, uh, just straight up doing like, you know, Harvey <laughs> Keitel voice. But other than that, yeah. Uh, oh, I mean, that, <clears throat> yeah, I was talking about the gospel according to uh, Matthew, but, uh, but yeah, Harvey oh, Keitel. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was like more like, I guess, realistic in a way, but it it didn't it doesn't hit on the wild themes as much where like, you know, it just has these little things in it where like, you know, uh, these kind of Gnostic ideas. And I feel like it's much uh, it's got this like crazy kinetic style and takes also like it takes the religion of it very seriously, even the very bizarre kind of um liminal parts of it like you know when he pulls his own heart out uh (laughs) in front of all the disciples and uh you know goes to the desert and like talks to the lion who's who's satan and uh Mm -hmm. all these other things and and yeah these dynamics where like judas is actually judas is like a hardcore like uh like judean tanky basically he's like a zealot Mm -hmm. he's like an assassin for the zealots and you know i think at one point he says like if you stray this far from the path of revolution i'll kill you myself you know (laughs) shit like that yeah so it's got like a much more like like live wire uh kind of energy to it and more mystical and i hate that word but uh kind of energy that uh i don't know it's like i've always found it kind of compelling even though it was like picketed when it came out it was like seen as blasphemous because like he has sex with mary magdalene but it was all Mm, that was just a fever dream by shaitan so it doesn't really count as whatever um but uh no i think the gospel of judas is interesting i think a lot of these different uh alternative stories uh are interesting uh i think yeah i think that a lot of the gnostic stuff i mean the whole like idea of the inversion it's similar to the kind of inversions that we talked about in the gnostic material um in uh again the reptoid episode where we explore some of these things uh but yeah i think obviously it's, it's interesting and it's uh it's a compelling uh take and i think that uh yeah there are uh some like uh apocryphal or uh pseudonymous uh writings that are uh you know uh, uh similar to this like um uh, there's a gospel of barnabas um mm-hmm. that uh you know i, I think that the only surviving manuscripts are pretty late. Like it's obviously like uh, pseudepigraphical, but um, yeah. you know uh, there might be an earlier work that it's based on. But uh, like uh, the, that, and that's straight up like you know very like uh, 
uh, very Muslim, like, and he straight up, you know, says, like, I'm not the Messiah and stuff like that, you know, like, oh, I, yeah, yeah, uh, for sure, yeah, you know, like, it's like, there's gonna be another spicy... prophet coming whose name uh-huh. Muhammad or like stuff like that, you know, like, uh, <laughs> uh, very, like, uh, explicit, um, you know, Barnabas is the narrator of that. Uh, 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 he says, uh, Jesus weeping said, Oh, Barnabas, it is necessary that I should reveal to you great secrets, which after that I shall be departed from this world. You shall reveal to it. Then answered he that writes weeping and said, Suffer me to weep, O master, and other men also, for that we are sinners. And you that are a holy one and prophet of God, it is not fitting for you to weep so much. Jesus answered, Believe me, Barnabas, that I cannot weep as much as I ought. For if men had not called me God, I should uh, have seen God as he will be seen in paradise and should have been safe not to fear the day of judgment. But God knows that I am innocent because I never have uh, harbored thought to be held more than a poor slave. No, I tell you that if I had not been called God, I should have been carried into paradise when I shall depart from the world, whereas now I shall not go thither until the judgment. Now you see I have cause to weep, if I have cause to weep. Sorry. Know, O Barnabas, that for this I must face, I must have great persecution, and shall be sold by one of my disciples for thirty pieces of money. Whereupon I am sure that he who shall sell me shall be slain in my name, for that God shall take me up from the earth, and shall change the appearance of the traitor, so that every one shall believe him to be me. Nevertheless, Whoa. when he dies an evil death, I shall abide that dishonor for a long time in the world. But when Muhammad shall come, the sacred messenger of God, that infamy shall be taken away. And this shall God do, because I have confessed the truth of the Messiah, who shall give me this reward, that I shall wait. be known to be alive and to be a stranger to that death of infamy. Uh, Hold up. Yeah, wait, wait, wait. Wait, uh, wait, wait, wait. He yeah. says when the prophet Muhammad comes? Yeah, well, it's from the Gospel of Barnabas, which, like, you know, is very pro-Islamic, you know. Uh, well, from, when was the Gospel? Well, but when was the when was the well, Gospel? Well, we of don't Barnabas know. Written? The only manuscripts that we have are later, you know, the much later, like the 16th and 17th centuries, you know. Oh, like, that's when okay. The manuscripts are from. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say if this because a lot of these Gospels written in like the the first and second and third centuries AD, like several hundred years before. Uh, yes, Muhammad. yes. A so, lot of the Gnostic Gospels it, are. Yes, that would yes, be quite yes. a that would be quite a coup uh, to basically find a Gnostic Gospel predicting well, it. I mean, maybe you know, we, we do maybe have. We did. There are a couple of did. things. There are a couple of things like that. Uh, the like the famous Paraclete, you know, uh, in the Bible, uh, because mm. Jesus talks about uh, the arrival of a Paraclete, which is like an advocate. Uh, something like that uh, he okay. says um, in uh, John uh, 14 uh, 15 to 14 27 uh, you know uh, Judas said but Lord why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world Jesus replied anyone who loves me will obey my teaching my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching these words you hear are not my own they belong to the father who sent me all this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate whom the father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Mm, uh, okay. Okay. That, 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 the, yeah, that lines up, that lines up. Uh, and you know, I guess the, even the oral tradition advocate makes me think of, uh, like an attorney in a courtroom, like speaking. And then, you know, somebody, uh, you know, transmitted orally the, Mm. yeah made the I case mean, so to speak like a few the, hundred years yeah, later the intercessor i mean i think the christian explanation of this is that it's the holy spirit 
but what does that mean? Like, I don't get it. How will the Holy Spirit come out? Oh, because the Holy Spirit is amongst the disciples. And, uh, yeah, that's the idea. Uh, eh, mm, nah. uh, not sure about that. Anyway. Um, okay. Well, anyways. Ba- but, like, yeah, uh, but in, in the Gospel of... Ju- yeah, I find some of that stuff, like, uh, interesting. Yeah, and actually, there's a great, uh, like, did you know there's a tomb of Jesus in Japan? Um, no, I did not know that. Yeah, I, wait, that sounds uh, a little it, familiar. Maybe I. That, I think I, I might have like told ago. you about this. I feel like I pitched you like on a script about like Jesus' life in Japan, uh, <laughs> because uh, like years ago, like okay. uh, so Shingo Village is a location. This is Wikipedia of what is reported to be the last resting place of Jesus, located in the tomb of Jesus, uh, Kirisuto no Haka, and the residence of Jesus' last descendants, the family of Sajiro Sawaguchi. According to the Sawaguchi family's claim, Jesus Christ did not die on the cross at Golgotha. Instead, his brother, Isukiri, took his place on the cross, while Jesus Whoa. fled across Siberia to Mutsu province in northern Japan. Once in Japan, he changed his name to Torai Tora Dai Tenku and became a rice farmer, married a 20-year-old Japanese woman named Miyuko, uh, and raised three daughters near what is now Shingo. While in Japan, it is asserted that he traveled, learned, and eventually died at the age of 106. His body was exposed on a hilltop for four years. According to the customs of the time, Jesus' bones were collected, bundled, and buried in the mound reported to be the grave of Jesus Christ. Wow. So it's a similar story where he had his brother, uh, Isukuri, uh, take his yeah. place. Um, yeah. You know. Uh, wow. Uh, like, uh, that I, that yeah. is, and how, how long does that legend go back? Uh, I don't know uh, how long it uh, goes back. It, apparently, the uh, the claims, according to Wikipedia, another mound near the alleged grave of Jesus is said to contain an ear of the brother of Jesus and a lock from the hair of Mary, the only relics of his family Jesus could carry when he fled Judea. The claim started in 1933 after the discovery of supposed ancient Hebrew documents detailing Jesus' life and death in Japan that was supposedly the Testament of Jesus. These documents are referred to as the Takeuchi documents, which are said to be ancient documents passed down to the family of Takeuchi Kiyomaro, the founder of a religious movement called Amatsukyo. The documents mm. were allegedly seized by Japanese authorities and taken to Tokyo shortly before World War II during a crackdown on the Amatsukyo religion in 1935 and have not been seen since. Mysterious wow. lost documents. Okay. Uh, wow. So okay. That's a. I'd. I'd like to <clears throat> explore that a little more. That is fascinating. Um. The. The last thing yeah. I want to say about the Gnostic Gospels. Uh. <clears throat> that I, I. think escaped us before. I'd forgotten about this because I. I took a class in college on like I think it was called early Christian literature and it was all about the Gnostic Gospels and I'd forgotten this weird synchronicity that there's like very important there's a very important missing gospel that basically was a common source for all of the uh, the synaptic gospels Matthew Mark Luke and John and also for a lot of the gnostic gospels but whatever the source was it's been lost we have no like original document of it but basically right. like uh, biblical scholars have been able to kind of like go back and do kind of like forensic history of all of these documents and try to you know language analysis like different phrases or anecdotes that are in the gospels and try to uh, basically suss out like the substance of this one but the name they always gave it, it like I had totally forgotten until it just popped back into my head here uh, was the Q source or the gospel right oh uh, yes right it's the Q no. source yeah yeah so yes. I don't know I mean I, it's ironic because I feel like the the Christian people that follow QAnon 
um, would not be super up on like the academic, you know, debates around the early, or maybe they are, I don't actually know. Um, or if even the discussion of a Q source is kind of like irrelevant or even, uh, threatening, you know, kind of like, a you know, you're trying to mess with like the infallibility of the Bible by talking about this, this lost, you know, version of it that, uh, influenced all the others. But I just thought that is kind of interesting. Like you have this like kind of pseudo, this like Christian, uh, mysterious, like psyop figure on the internet that is sort of giving you like the hidden gospel of Q. And if Mm -hmm. there's something to do with like, maybe the name was inspired by that to some degree, um, uh, maybe not, but it is kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, they never um, found the key yeah. source. They don't know what it is. I uh, guess they're still Q, waiting for the storm to come, I suppose. I, yeah, well, Q, like, evokes a question, so, like, a mysterious aspect. I mean, why was it originally called Q? Like, the, why is it called the Q source? Because it was, I, its identity was in question? Uh, I believe, I, I, I was assume that the, the Q source, uh, uh, oh, yeah, well, it's from the German, uh, I think it's Quell, or Kel, uh, oh, Q-U-E-L-L-E, well, which Kel, means yeah, source. Yeah, meaning source. Well, yeah, 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 yeah Quell, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I guess that's that's really, yeah. it just means source, uh, so, yeah, so oh, it, it's see. a it's mm-hmm. part of the common material found in the Gospels of Matthew German and Luke, Quell, but not yeah. in, but not in the Gospel of Mark, so... Uh, there, there's even a Q plus hypothesis. <laughs> Remember that when people uh, thought that like Q plus was like Trump himself, like posting on HM. Oh, right. Yes. Q, Q yeah. plus. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, yeah. like, what are we seeing going on here? Uh, it's, uh, well, yeah, there's definitely a like little... a lot of the Gnostic stuff is really interesting. And there is a lot of like, I think that some of the Gnostic stuff is closer to like, you know, the Hawk than, like the stuff uh, at least in orthodox christian interpretations of the gospels you know the canonical gospels uh some of it yeah. like you know not so much but you know uh i think that the tr- like there's a lot of traditions that were being sorted out like obviously another prophet was required but uh <laughs> you know there there is like a lot of oh, there's a lot of hack like on on both sides i think um yeah i'm reading about like jesus substitution theories uh right now like uh there's, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, Gnostic texts that claim, like, Simon was crucified in the place of Jesus. Like, uh, there was uh, sort of uh, different twinnings uh, that happened, like uh, the Book of Thomas, the contender. Yeah, uh, or the Daddy Book of Thomas, Thomas is good. Know, also. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that one's got a lot of, a, like, yeah. uh, ciphers, I think you could call them, um, where he yeah. really, he just dropped some, like, real heavy heavy trips on his disciples uh yeah i think my favorite one was saying 13 um where he it's like after he's going on about like he says this heaven will disappear and the one above it will disappear too those who are dead aren't alive and those who are living won't die in the days when you ate what was dead you made it alive when you're in the light what will you do on the day when you were one you became (laughs) divided when you become divided what will you do and then, like, later, he says to his disciples, if you were to compare me to someone, who would you say I'm like? Simon Peter said, you're like a just angel. Matthew said to him, you're like a wise philosopher. And then Thomas said to him, teacher, I'm completely unable to say whom you're like. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Basically, it's like, I don't even know what's going on right now. Like, what are you talking yeah. about? Like, uh, I, I, I'm i just, like, completely blown away. My mind is blown. Well, that's um, hot, though. I think because this point is that, like, he can't compare 
like the idea is Judas is God, as like So he's saying I can't compare you to anything. So yes. that's yes. you know closer to the heck, you know. Uh, that, that is a God common like anything creation. <sighs> It, you know, does, uh, uh, it does seem to be a common trend through most of the Gnostic Gospels that he is not doing the Gospel of John thing where he's like, I am literally God. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like right. all the other ones are much more kind of liminal and mis- And even the Gospel of Mark, which I believe is the earliest one, he's very cagey about calling himself God or even the Son of God. I think at one point somebody right, calls him the Son of God and he's like, shut up. Don't say that about me. You know, like he's mm. he's like it, it, some people interpret that as he's kind of I don't like embarrassed. Think that even in John, I don't think even in John, Jesus says like I am God. I, he might say like I am that I am or something, but I don't think he even says in John I am God. Well, uh, he talks he says, about like, how he's existed. Uh, uh, yeah, he he's existed since the beginning of time. Like, there's a lot more heavy. Well, like, that's different uh, he, from being God. The prophet Muhammad existed. Okay, from fair enough. Uh, okay, whatever. Um, yeah, he was a prophet no, no, no. when Adam was water and clay. So <laughs> right. uh, his okay. name he's, is written on the throne. He's of all. Allah, he's so. always already happening. Uh, I get it. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, you know. Uh, so yeah. yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's God. Uh, I mean, well, obviously, like I, I, I do remember from my Catholic school education and taking this class that. They yeah, ride, uh, the Gospel of John rides. They're like, well, if you read this, then it's clearly saying that Jesus is God. Uh, just don't question it. Uh, but well, it, no, that was well, it was, no, it was when I, mean, I took yeah, it in college, I, which was not a not a Catholic college. It was it was this is a right, secular right. class. They were saying that like this is where I know it, John, it, you really John see the identification. Yeah, John is much more he, mystical and much more hardcore in in that. Yeah, I definitely agree. But uh, it definitely centers I, like, the duality know. of Jesus as both man and and God simultaneously, which is what the Catholic Church kind of ended up running with, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Whereas, like, it's not necessarily very uh, clearly stated in the Gospel of Mark. It's a little bit more stated, but still somewhat more ambiguous in Matthew and Luke. And then John, which is the latest one. So John was written in like 120 or 140 AD or something like that. Uh, whereas Mark was maybe written in like 75, something like that. So there the, there might have yeah. been people that writing Mark who actually knew real disciples. Whereas uh, once you get to John, it's like you're probably maybe at least two or yeah. three generations down the line. Right. So right. Uh, and it's much more confident. It also has a lot more stuff calling it like it's the it's the one that really talks about like the then the Jews showed up and were like, we hate Jesus. You know, yeah, it's like got the most like of that kind of stuff, stuff in it. Like in the beginning was the word. And yes, like, yes, the word exactly. Was with God and the word was God. That's yeah. like, you know, very mystical, very arcane, like hard to interpret, like what that actually yeah. really means. Like, uh, you know, uh, you can definitely get the idea Jesus is God from that for sure. Uh, yeah, but yeah, really, yeah. like outside of the pre-existing association between Jesus and the word, like it doesn't really uh, say that. Although, of course, you know, yeah, I get what you're saying. Like, I, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I'm my not, original point but, was that I the mean, Gnostic Gospels do not, not ride on that. It's all much. distorted. It's all corrupted, <laughs> uh, etc. It so, is. These are just well, fragments whatever. of uh, Coptic fragments but, of yeah. something uh, that happened. Yeah, Anyways, uh, think, so yeah, check out I think the Gnostic that we, Gospels. Yeah, I think that we read in an earlier episode the uh, Gnostic Apocalypse of John, I believe. Uh, yeah, the one yeah. Where Jesus says, like, you know, he's like laughing, and there's like two Jesuses, like, uh, you know, <laughs> they uh, like two Jesuses appear, and he like, uh, 
you know, he's like, get out of here. Like, uh, do you remember that one? I feel like I, uh, I mentioned yeah, that one yeah, episode. We, yeah. We read a few uh, of them. Yeah. He laughs yeah, in the Gospel of Judas as well. He laughs at Judas yeah. uh, out of uh, kind of apropos of nothing and then says something very, uh, like, very trippy about how, like, the stars are going to fall from the sky or something. Um, <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. Know, it's um, like, but, yeah, right. Master, why are you laughing at me? Jesus answered and said, I'm not laughing at you, but at the error of the stars, because these six stars go astray with these five warriors, and they'll all be destroyed along with their creations. <laughs> it's just like he's just laughing uh, about it. Like, you know. Um, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Talking about how, um, like, every... He, he does say something very creepy here about uh, Sokloss. I forget what Sokloss is, but uh, he says that... Um, when Sokolos completes the time span that's been determined for him, their first star will appear with the generations and they'll finish what's instead. Then they'll sleep around in my name, murder their children, and they'll dot 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 evil and dot 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 the realms, bringing the generations and presenting them to Sokolos. And after that, we'll bring the 12 tribes of Israel from dot 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 and the generations will all serve Sokolos, sinning in my name. And your star will Sokolos. Yeah, and then your star will Who rule over the thirteenth realm. Uh Sokloss is uh <laughs> uh Sokloss is he i think it's some kind of spirit is an angel, okay, uh, who's associated with um with Yaldabaoth. Um yeah, he, he's talking about like the luminous cloud of light, uh that no angel could ever see among all those who called God. Now the crowd of these immortals is called cosmos that is perishable by the father and the 72 luminaries with the self begotten and his 72 realms. That's where the first human appeared with his incorruptible powers in the realm that appeared with this, with his generation is the cloud of knowledge and the angel who's called Eleleth. After these things, Eleleth said, let 12 angels come into being to rule over chaos and Hades. And look from the cloud, there appeared an angel whose face flashed with fire and whose likeness was defiled by blood his name was nebro which means rebel others call him yaudabaoth and another angel no. sakla yeah i know and, and another <laughs> angel saklas came from the cloud too so nebro created six angels and saklas did too to be assistants they brought out 12 angels in the heavens which even each of them receiving a portion in the heavens then saklas said to his angels Let's create a human being after the likeness and the image. And they fashioned Adam and his wife Eve, who in the cloud is called life, because by this name all the generations seek him, and each of them calls her by their names. Now, Sokolos didn't command uh, dot dot to give birth, except blank among the generations, blank, which this blank. And the angel said to him, your life will last for a limited time with your children. Judah said to Jesus, how long can a person live? Jesus said, why are you amazed that the lifespans of Adam and his generation are limited in the place he's received his kingdom with his ruler? Judah said to Jesus, does the human spirit die? Uh, Jesus said, this is how it is. Uh, God commanded Michael to loan spirits to people so that they might serve. Then the great one commanded Gabriel to give spirits to the great generation with no king, the spirit along with the soul. So the rest of the souls, blank, light, blank the chaos blank <laughs> seek the spirit within you which you've made to live in this flesh from the angelic uh, generations then god caused knowledge to be brought to adam and those with him so that the kings of chaos and hades might not rule over them judas asked what will these generations do 
he says uh, the stars complete all these things. When Sokolos completes the time span, uh, I, the, basically what I just read, like the first star will appear. They'll finish what's been said. Then they'll yeah. sleep around in my name, murder their children. They'll do evil and realms uh, mm. and present them to Sokolos. And uh, they'll all serve Sokolos sinning in my name. And your star, Judas, no. will rule over the 13th realm. And that's when he starts laughing. And Judas says, Master, why are you laughing at me? <laughs> and he said, I'm not laughing at you, but the heir of the stars, because these six stars go astray with these five warriors. They'll all be destroyed. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, truly, it's I very say cinematic. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm picturing it. Uh, yeah. Truly, right. I um, say to you, Judas, those who offer sacrifices to Sokolos blank everything that's evil but you'll do more than all of them because you'll sacrifice the human who bears me your horn has already been raised your anger has been kindled your star has ascended and your heart has strayed truly i say to you your last blank and the thrones of the realm have been defeated the kings have grown weak the angelic generations have grieved and the evil they sowed is destroyed and the ruler is wiped out and then the fruit of the great generation of adam will be exalted because before heaven earth and the angels that generation from the realms exists look you've been told everything lift up your eyes and see the cloud with the light in it and the stars around it and the star that leads the way is your star then Judas looked up and saw the luminous cloud, and he entered it. Those standing on the ground heard a voice in the cloud saying, wow. The great generation, and blank. And Judas didn't see Jesus anymore. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's what Jesus told Judas uh, about everything. Uh, wow. <laughs> gotta he watch out for sock loss. Uh, yeah, 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 you really gotta rock out for sock loss. <laughs> Wow. Sounds like a UFO. Okay. I don't know. Uh, there's just a lot. Yeah, he definitely. Uh, Yaldabaoth, of course, makes an appearance. Yeah. So, so that um, a new, a new, a new villain in the pantheon has been entered into the yeah, Gnostic. Yeah, for uh, sure. Sokolos uh, is very worrisome. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. somehow affiliated okay. with uh, Yaldabaoth, but he's uh, running his own game, and he created humans. I, I don't know. It's it's all Watch very confusing. Out. Um yeah yeah the ones that uh, i was thinking yeah. of was the uh was the apocalypse the gnostic apocalypse of peter which is a bit okay. like uh much more straightforward that's the one where jesus you know it's kind of a docetism i believe is what it's called or docetism okay. where it's like the dichotomy between jesus's body and his spirit um okay and uh yeah it's, i think we talked about it. it's where peter sees two jesuses and uh you know uh like uh he uh, peter saw sees jesus being seized by uh the roman guards and he says like what do i see O lord is that you yourself whom they take and that you are grasping me or is it this mm -hmm. one glad and laughing on the tree and is it another one whose feet and hands they are striking and jesus replies he whom you saw on the tree glad and laughing is the living jesus but this one whose hands and feet they drive nails into is his fleshy part which is the substitute being put to shame the one who came into being in his likeness but look at him and me. So there's still this sort of doubling, the idea of like the two Jesuses being switched out. Twin I guess that idea is in the Gospel yeah. of Jesus. Yeah, and the Gospel of Jesus is not really like a substitution. Uh, Gospel of Judas said it's, it's not really a, a substitution, but the death of Jesus's body is a good thing because it sort of frees the the spirit. Um, that mm -hmm. is the real Jesus in a way. Yeah. So it's this. Uh, yeah, the body, human that bears me is what he referred dichotomy. to. It. Yeah, exactly. Like he's a yeah, thetan. that same one. <laughs> Yeah, and that same one he calls his body like a uh, stony vessel, you know, like an altar. It is of Elohim and law, and it is not, you know, mm. it's uh, this harsh dichotomy, kind of invoking 
the Old Testament. The same thing of like Yaldabaoth being the evil god of the Old Testament. But yeah, yeah. anyway, very interesting. We're uh, yeah, we're, uh, we are interested in this stuff as well. Tested, I think. Uh, yeah, but yeah, very yeah. Beware. You never Sock know when the Gnostic uh, Gospels will be relevant. Uh, but yeah. watch out for Sokolos. Uh, yeah. Yeah, beware um, Sokolos. I marvel at your wisdom, in nature's gifts abounding. I marvel at the simple and the absolute astounding. I see your deeds before me and spread across the heavens. Yet man has fallen down too far. Why did he you abandon? Every day divided between darkness and the light, yet sunlit hearts and saintly souls have fallen to the night. Everywhere around me, your wisdom overflowing Yet as I look much closer, still demons coming, going. It's not that now I doubt you or sold my tattered soul. It's just that under every step, a deeper, darker hole. You made us in your likeness, then shame to all of you. For life on earth is but a curse, a sadly common view. I know you have your ways and means and life is our own making. But why do you with all your might let children still be taken? Yes, let us each one suffer for all that we have done. But don't you think you could have helped us evil overcome? No longer can I bear it, the sin of humankind, from way before the birth of Christ to in the future blind. It's you I hold accountable. Your hosts have all retreated, for on their lips your words were still. History repeated. So now I stand before you and challenge you to show. No longer can you hide behind the myths that legend know. Come forth in all your glory as mystics once had seen to drive the evil from our hearts where goodness once yeah, last one here. Uh, we're at two hours and thirty minutes, so I think you know I, I feel good about that. But uh, yeah, this one, we'll we'll see how out of control this one goes because we're this is a this is a lifestyle question, really. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I you know, yeah. so from Parenti Sound System asks, uh, what is your take on Rudolf Steiner and Theosophy Anthroposophy? Uh, we're looking at sending the kids to a Waldorf-inspired school, and I'm familiar with some of the basics, but I'm wondering what your view is. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, a Waldorf-inspired is, I guess, different from Waldorf, so I don't know. I mean, that could just be, well, like, you know, what really... It's hard to say, like, a Waldorf school would be, like, so much worse than sending your kids to, like, a public school where, like, you know, they might have to do, like, a pedo-devised sex head curriculum or something, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. But, yeah, uh, well, I mean, anthroposophy, I mean, obviously, uh, Rudolf Steiner was super influenced by theosophy and was, like, a former theosophist, like, just straight up, you know, he was, like, really big into uh, Blavatsky. I think he broke with her mainly over the fact that she was all about, like, Hinduism, as we've kind of discussed, um, or, uh, you know, uh, Aryan uh, beliefs, and he wanted to be a bit more into Christianity, uh, yeah. you know, a, a bit more uh, uh, Christian, uh, but also, like, uh, German idealism, 
uh, and uh, a little bit of Rosie Cross stuff. Uh, which I yeah, guess he was kind of into that. Yeah. 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 yeah and, I mean, mm-hmm. so yeah, I, I'm just, I know, I know a little bit about Rudolf Steiner and I've kind of been, I've been seeing his name pop up uh, a little more often lately. I think, uh, I think Jason Horsley uh, over at the Liminalist has, has become kind of a pretty interested in Steiner. Uh, maybe that's where Parenti mm-hmm. uh, had maybe uh, sparked his interest, but I think, yeah, you probably can't do any worse. I mean, I, I was looking at like Waldorf education, I'm I'm sure it probably varies from school to school to some degree, but it all sounds nice. Um, you know, I saw it sounds that they, like, like still believe in the humor. Is that like some Waldorf school or like that they uh, you know uh-huh. use the 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 framework of the four humors to like evaluate kids? You know, like do they have like a phlegmatic temperament? Or they have a sanguine temperament, you know, uh, and stuff like that. I mean, there is, like, some weird esoteric stuff in, like, Anthroposophy. I don't know, like, it's gonna, yeah, obviously it's gonna be more present in certain schools. If it's Waldorf-inspired, it's probably more, like, with the, the pedagogical, like, aspects of it, rather than, like, you know, the real nitty-gritty of Steiner's ideas, uh, and things like that. But, yeah, like, uh, you know, they, yeah, they definitely I mean, uphold the, uh... The, the the four elements uh or the sorry the four humors the four temperaments yeah i mean i see uh, uh i i see that like many of steiner's ideas influence the pedagogy of the original waldorf school and still play a central role in modern waldorf classrooms uh including subjects like reincarnation karma the existence of gnomes and eurythmy which uh is that gnomes that's yeah, cool. the existence of gnomes. Uh, or interesting. Uh, uh, my Waldorf student son believes in gnomes, and that's fine with me from the Atlantic. It's not a bad <laughs> thing for kids to grow up differently than their parents. Okay. Um, word. Uh, wow, this is by Noah Berlatsky. Oh, wow, uh, really? That, like, Wait, he, dude, he, yeah. he sends his uh, child to Waldorf school, his child believes in gnomes, and it's fine with him. Is that, uh, do I have yes. that all correct? I have, okay. He, this is, this what is does a it great say? article. I have arguments with my nine-year-old son about gnomes. They go more or less like my arguments with him about Santa Claus. They don't exist, I tell him. They do... T- okay, so for one, it's, like, uh, funny that this dude is, like... Uh, since he's saying they go, like, his arguments about Santa Claus, he's literally, like, screaming at his nine-year-old son that Santa isn't real. Like, that's really weird as a parent, I think. But anyway, like, uh, very inversion of your normal parent-child dynamic but anyway so uh yeah he says uh he argues with his son about gnomes and about santa saying they don't exist i tell him they do too he tells me don't mess with them they'll get you then he looks at me with wide eyes and tries to start giggling gnomes or technically earth spirits are big at waldorf schools especially in early grades my son dated a super cute one when he was in preschool now he's in third grade at urban prairie waldorf school they faded into the background behind arithmetic and chinese and building models. Uh oh, they're gonna teach you Chinese. Chinese. Is this Joe like? Is, it, it, uh, is uh, what? Is there like a Larouche overlap to this school? Because it almost sounds like I don't know. Uh, they want you to learn Mandarin yes. and uh, sing songs Uh-oh. praising Trump. And wait, hold on. Did he say that his child had like dated a gnome in preschool? 
No, no, no. He knitted one. Sorry. Oh, he knitted uh, one. He, okay, he knitted sorry. Because I, I was gonna go. I was that was gonna send me off the charts. Uh, attacking. That Steiner's was gonna. That's some McMartin uh, stuff where he's like, "Hello, yeah. uh, uh, Dad. I'm dating a gnome." Uh, that's uh, nice. Talk about uh, like pedo curriculum, like times a yeah. thousand. Like uh, create a tulpa and have a relationship with him. No, uh, not not my kid. Uh, anyways, uh, so sorry. Uh, um, it is kind of weird that they like okay like what like i mean i guess i kind of believe in gnomes like in a way like i guess i believe gnomes are a form of gin uh sort of but i just want to know like what are they saying about gnomes like why are they saying they're like kindly earth spirits that you should worship like i don't get it yeah like like, what uh what uh, yeah i mean what does noah berlatsky say about it what if he's the Um, kind of person that yells at his child about don't not believing in Santa Claus. Well, he thinks like, his son will grow out of his belief in gnomes. And uh, even though the school is weird, uh, he says, how can I entrust my child to a school that doesn't accord with my own religious and spiritual beliefs? How can I expose my boy to an ideology that I believe is largely nonsense? What, in short, is wrong with me? In response, I would say first, that while I'm not on board with all of Waldorf philosophy, I am absolutely on board with the parts of it, uh, with parts of it. And those are, I think, the most important parts. I would rather have my nine-year-old learn about gnomes by a long shot than spend his school days preparing for a multiple-choice test designed by some distant bureaucrat. I love that recess and flopping about in the mud in all weather and movement, that's Waldorf for Jim, are considered not discardable extras but central parts of learning. And I really love that his gym teacher is not encouraging him, as my public school gym teacher encouraged me, to pick on the kids in class who were weaker, or in one case, on the kid who had to wear braces on his legs. I mean, that was like in the well, like in the forties. Yeah, like, like the, you, or, kid, you know, like it was in the sixties. Like, I don't know how. You know, yeah, I don't know how uh, old this guy is. But he's even, old as hell. He's old, like way too old for, to act the way he acts on Twitter. Uh, but like, no, he's know, like a gen. Uh, he's like a Gen Xer. I'm looking at his picture right now, and he's got a little kid, so he's right, not that right. old. But it, but like he probably right, went to high right, school right, in like right. the eighties, where there was like a lot more bullying going on. Which like if you went to like a wo- any kind of woke school in like a big city nowadays, like they're I would be highly surprised. The gym teacher would not be encouraging you to pick on someone with like cystic fibrosis, uh, or you would be getting fired. <laughs> Like, yeah, that would yeah, not exactly. Be so, uh, I mean, yeah. that that is weird when you kind of like people think too much about like, oh, the things that like regular school had that was bad, but like they're thinking about like 20, 30 years ago, and as opposed to looking at like what is it like today, you know, I mean. I don't know. I mean, he can do what he wants with this kid. Um, it sounds like certain aspects of this are like nice, you know? It's like, okay, like, yeah, focus more on playing and like activities. And- it's weird how he would be upset that his school. T- I mean, I don't believe like in, uh, like, you know, I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea. I mean, I guess I do in a way subscribe to intelligent design, but I feel like intelligent design is like problematic because it's sort of like, you know, God is has power over everything. Like, we don't think that, like, he just, like, nudged some processes and have power over in certain ways, like, designing it intelligent. Like, you know, it's, like, kind of a weird fake compromise. Like, but yeah. Noah Bertlatsky says that, you know, uh, if his school were teaching intelligent design, I want to ask some questions. Why is that worse than gnomes? Yeah, well, because it, it, it attacks one of the pillars. It's religious. Like, it's religious. Yeah, it's religious. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, gnomes, he does. Like, he, yeah, exactly. Gnomes are paganistic, so that's okay. Like, if the school was teaching about Baphomet, that would be fine. 
because that's yeah. not religious. Um, well, yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, he does throw a bone out that, like, that, you know, in his Jewish community center growing uh, camp that his son went to, there were, like, there were a lot of, like, uh, there were a lot of African-American kids there. Um, and then, you know, not all students in Catholic schools are Catholic by a long shot, which is true. And, like, I went to Catholic school. That's another thing people do with Catholic schools is, like, they assume that, like, nuns still beat children in Catholic school. Like, I think, I, I swear, and maybe it's more of an yeah. East Coast thing that uh, even people I know my own age who went to Catholic school is, like, still, and, and my certainly my parents, like, uh, yeah, there was beating going on in all those schools. It was, like, pretty hardcore. But, like, I went to Catholic school in California in, like, the Bay Area, so it was, like, very Jesuit and, like, relatively hippy-dippy and really not that much different than, like, going to a public school, except there were, like, certain aspects of it. And there were a bunch of kids there that were, like, were not Catholic or, like, maybe nominally were, but, like, didn't go there because they wanted to get, like, indoctrinated with some religious stuff. And I think they pretty much just taught us evolution. They didn't even go with the intelligent design, which some, like, trad cats were kind of into. Uh, I remember mm-hmm. back in those days. But, like, uh, the, there is something to be said, like, uh, for going to uh, – sending your kid to a school, even though they have some beliefs that – uh, you don't necessarily want subscribe to, but gnomes, uh, I don't know. Like that. Well, that, I just don't know that, what maybe, is actually like the know. practical function of gnomes. Like, yeah, I know like what why? In what, the in what context? Are embedded in. I want yeah. to know the larger cosmology that gnomes are embedded in because it raises some questions. Like, what is the larger utility of gnomes? Because, like, you know, for instance, gin is a word that is used to explain, uh, as we have on the podcast, uh, a number of phenomena that are encountered in the world. It's a useful explanatory system. Uh, Gnomes, I believe, can function the same way, although it's like kind of like a subcategory of Earth spirits, which is very odd, uh, you know, that you would isolate that, because I feel like gnomes always... I mean, actually, you know, the the roots of gnomes is gay nomos in Greek, meaning like... Uh, in the same way that fish are considered to be thalassanomos, which is like mm-hmm. uh, sea law, the gnomes, uh, they gain nomos, they, are, they, they have the earth uh, law, and they move through the earth as a fish move through the water. So they've always been embedded in the system of these different elemental beings. So to isolate the gnomes on their own is odd in, its, in itself, and kind of like it gestures to a larger cosmology, and just wonders, one wonders what the function of them is, but I don't really know... Uh, like what it is for the Waldorf people. Um, yeah. I, mean, I know that Steiner has some beliefs that are like even more alarming, arguably, than the idea of gnomes. Yeah. Like, I mean, what would you say uh, are, are some of the most alarming for uh, for Parenti here? Parenti the parent. Uh, probably you know, like, like, the, Lucif- like what's... the Lucifer stuff. If you're like not into Lucifer, like probably. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I mean, the gnome stuff, uh, we have Noah Berlatsky's testimony that those things are still. Uh, you know, uh, obviously, like, uh, an element of Waldorf education, which is, uh, interesting. Like, uh, you know, uh, even though he would throw a hissy fit if they taught his kid that angels were real, like, it's fine if no... Oh, exactly, uh, but, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, like, uh, the... Yeah, like, uh, but the stuff about, like, Lucifer and the importance of, like, the Luciferian instinct in people uh, is probably, like, up there in terms of, like, the the wackiest stuff of Steiner's beliefs. I mean, yes. really, Speaking... like, anthroposophy is very similar to theosophy, uh, or at least it clearly has... It has clear the- theosoph- theosophical roots. And uh, the... I mean, 
the Eurythmy stuff kind of reminds me a little bit of like Gurdjieffian uh, movement stuff, but I would like to do a yeah. episode at some point and talk about that. And I mean, that's not really like too, you know, that's uh, in terms of thinking about sending your kid. I don't know if Eurythmy is like something that that's actually sounds like probably like a fun use of time for a kid. Like, I don't know, uh, the dance, like a uh, spiritual inspired stuff. Like that's not, I mean, and I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the that, thing. Like, the Luciferian <sighs> impulse. Uh, but well, it is he, interesting. He, I mean, he did ask our general thoughts on Steiner. So uh, yeah, well, you know, we're being general. To, uh, I yeah, to, about like his some of his Luciferic uh, thoughts. Yeah. If if you have a passage um, there where he talks about he gave these lectures on Lucifer and Ahriman, uh, which were these like yes. two you know these two deities that uh, he sets up as basically you know the two poles of evil, uh, and that like Christ. Uh, it like kind of walks the tightrope in perfect balance between the two, which is you know mm-hmm. that that's a that's a good, interesting way of looking at things. But like, do you want to you want to read a little more? Like, yeah, what, I'm looking what does that for mean? a good uh, aspect of Luciferic wisdom, like uh, or a good uh, passage that that indicates uh, Luciferic wisdom. So he thinks that Lucifer was actually incarnated in China at some point in like uh the ancient past and that was kind of the source of a lot of quote-unquote classical wisdom like greek uh wisdom and things yeah around 3000 Uh, bc somewhere around there yes uh in the east of asia he became a teacher and uh from him went forth what is described as the pre-christian pagan culture would still survive in the gnosis of the earliest christian centuries Ah. it would be wrong to pass derogatory judgment on this lucifer culture for all the beauty produced by greek civilization even the insight that is still alive in ancient greek philosophy and the tragedies of aeschylus would have been impossible without this lucifer incarnation the influence of the lucifer incarnation was still powerful in the south of europe in the north of Africa and in Asia Minor, oh, of course it was, in the first centuries of Christendom. And when the mystery of Golgotha had taken place on Earth, it was essentially the Luciferic wisdom through which it could be understood. The Gnosis, which set about the task of grasping the import of the mystery of Golgotha, was impregnated through and through with Luciferic wisdom. It must therefore be emphasized, firstly, that at the beginning of the 3rd millennium BC, there was a Chinese incarnation of Lucifer. At the beginning of our own era, the incarnation of Christ took place. And to begin with, the significance of the incarnation of Christ was grasped because of the power of the old Lucifer incarnation that still survived. This power did not actually fade from man's faculty of comprehension until the 4th century AD, and even then it had its aftermaths and ramifications. To these two incarnations, the Lucifer incarnation in ancient times and the incarnation of the Christ, which gave the earth its meaning, a third incarnation will be added in a future not so very far distant. And the events of the present time are already moving in such a way as to prepare for it. All right. Uh, The incarnation of Lucifer at the beginning of the third millennium BC, we must say, through Lucifer, man has acquired the faculty of using the organs of his intellect, of his power of intellectual discernment. It was Lucifer himself in a human body who was the first to grasp the power of intellect, what formerly could be imparted to man only through revelation, namely the content of the mysteries. Uh, hmm. Okay. So, uh, That's, yes. uh, yeah, I'm not really sure. I mean, it sounds super Gnostic. Yeah, Lucifer and super... Araman are both, like, you know, generally bad, but... Or like you know, uh, the, the excessive Luciferianness is bad because that yes. uh, you know, but you need a little bit of it, uh, and you need a mm-hmm. little bit of Ariman as well. 
because Ariman has like technology, uh, you know, uh, and stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know what other good aspects Ariman has. Uh, uh just to take he, it back, uh, yeah, but maybe to just, I, cause I saw this and I feel like, uh, Parenti is going to want to know this, that the first Waldorf inspired <laughs> high school was launched in 2008 with assistance from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Hmm. So, okay. Anyways, um... Yeah, uh, uh, so Ariman does something, like, <laughs> you know, there's something good about that. Like, you know, in general, it's, like, nihilistic. He destroys the idea of God. Lucifer makes man into a god, but you need a little bit of god. both of... Th- yeah, exactly. But, uh, you need a little bit of both of those things. Yeah. Um, he, he's all about... Like, he, is, uh, he does seem to be all about balancing different, like, kind of forces in both, like, society and in your personal self and in like your approach to like i guess uh i don't know if i would say your approach to ethics or morality because he's not necessarily being like he's not like an 09a person who's like go out and like kill somebody and then like do an act of charity (laughs) or something like that like he 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 kind of advocates this like middle road of um of uh, wouldn't you say kind of yeah yeah he's not like explicitly Uh, telling you like go out and be satanic uh at, at all but he's like saying there are certain maybe luciferian traits uh that are beneficial to mankind but just like if you take them too far basically yeah so he's basically uh, saying that the evil. antichrist okay well maybe not the antichrist but Ahriman is going to come um the uh the same way that there was a lucifer in the west in ancient times and then there was a christ in the middle uh there's going to be an Ahriman who's going to come uh, in the West, uh, and that hmm. can't be averted. It was inevitable. It's inevitable for men must confront Arhman face to face. He will be the individuality by whom we made clear to what uh, to men what indescribable cleverness can be developed. They call to their help. All their earthly forces can do to enhance cleverness and ingenuity. In the catastrophes that will befall humanity in the near future, men will become extremely inventive. Many things discovered in the forces and substances of the universe will be used to provide nourishment for man. Okay, so he's right. This is 1919, by the way. Uh, yeah. But these very discoveries will at the same time make it apparent that matter is connected with the organs of intellect, not with the organs of the spirit, but of the intellect. People will learn what to eat and drink in order to become really clever. Eating and drinking cannot make them spiritual, but clever and astute, yes. Men have no knowledge of these things as yet. But not only will they be striven for, they will be the inevitable outcome of catastrophes looming in the near future. And certain secret societies, where preparations are already in train, will apply these things in such a way that necessary conditions can be established for an actual incarnation of Arhavan on the Earth. This incarnation... Uh, evil AI? Uh, this incarnation yeah, cannot be maybe. averted. For men must realize, it seems like it, during the time of the Earth's existence, just how much can proceed from purely material processes. He must learn to bring under his control those spiritual and unspiritual currents which are leading to Arhman. So maybe you want your kid to go to the school so he'll be prepared for the Antichrist or get into one of the secret yeah, societies maybe. that know about his approach. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. Or maybe uh, you don't want to make a pact with Arhman. I don't know. But um, anyway, yeah, so uh, hmm. yeah. And Arhman is coming um, and uh, he says, uh, nowadays there's much talk about the spirit. 
But you who accept spiritual science should not be deluded by such chattering. You should perceive the difference between it and the descriptions of the spiritual world attempted in Anthroposophy, where the spiritual world is described as objectively as a physical world. You should probe into these differences, reminding yourselves repeatedly that abstract talk of the spirit is a deviation from the obscure striving for the spirit, and that by their talk, people are actually removing themselves from the spirit. Purely intellectual allusion to the spirit leads nowhere. What then is intelligence? What is the content of our human intelligence? I can best explain this in the following way. Imagine, and this will be better understood by the many ladies present. Imagine yourself standing in front of a mirror and looking into it. Uh, Canceled. Uh, Uh, (laughs) The picture presented to you uh, by the mirror is you, but it has no reality at all. It is nothing but a reflection. All the intelligence within your soul, all the intellectual content is only a mirror image. It has no reality. And just as your reflected image is called into existence through the mirror, so what mirrors itself as intelligence is called into existence through the physical apparatus of your body, through the brain. Man is intelligent only because his body is there. And as little as you can touch yourself by stretching your hand towards your reflective image, as little as you can lay hold of the spirit if you turn only to the intellectual. For the spirit is not there. What is grasped of the intellect, ingenious as it may be, never contains the spirit itself, but only a picture of spirit. All right, fair enough. So to distinguish the mere picture from the reality... That is, the task of the tenor of the soul, which does not merely theorize about spiritual science, but has actual perception of the spirit. That is what I wanted to say to you today in order to intensify the earnestness which should pervade our whole attitude to the spiritual life as conceived by Anthroposophy. For the evolution of humanity in the future will depend upon how truly this attitude is adopted by men of the present day. If what I have characterized in this lecture continues to be offered to the reception that is still offered, uh, continues to be offered, the reception that is still offered to it today by the vast majority of people on the earth, then Arhaman will be an evil guest when he comes. So people st- continue to not like my lectures, then Arhaman will be evil. But if men are able to rouse themselves to take into their consciousness what we have been studying, if they are able to so guide it that humanity can freely confront the Arhamanic influence, then when Arhaman appears, men will acquire, precisely through him, the power to realize that although the earth must enter inevitably into its decline, mankind is lifted above earthly existence through this very fact. When a man has reached a certain age in physical life, his body begins to decline. But if he is sensible, he makes no complaint, knowing that together with his soul, he is approaching a life that does not run parallel with his physical decline. There lives in mankind something that is not bound up with the already prevailing decline of the physical earth, but becomes more and more spiritual just because of this physical decline. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. That's weird. I don't necessarily like that so much. Yeah. Uh, Just like, that's like, you know. Like he's Some of talking. that is like, you know, I don't think that like, again, with all this theosophy stuff, like I don't think there's like stuff that's like, you know, uh, Hawk adjacent in it. But like something susses me out about the idea that like, oh, the more we despoil the earth, like we're going to become spiritually advanced. You know, we're going to yeah, like, we're going to become sus AI dies, god light beings. The earth is a, mm. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. Like the earth is a cocoon that must be left behind for us to uh, arrive at our nanite existence through the power of Ahriman. Talk uh, about talk about a to the stars academy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I would be sending my kid to like an Islamic school uh if it were me, uh not uh, madrasa. a school like an, <laughs> Yeah. Uh a exactly, madrasa. not a, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not a school necessarily founded by uh this guy, but uh, at the same time like you know, well, uh, I I just well I, I, I yeah I don't, you know, know. I don't know I don't know either. That, they're not going to be teaching you this probably your kid this. They're going to teach him about gnomes to repair him for the future when he can engage with Arkhamon. It's interesting how yeah. they're spirits of the earth, the gnomes. I mean, who are the gnomes serving? 
That's what I want to know. Who the yeah. films work for? Right. Who's Who do they master? work for? Uh, and and just um, uh, for for Parenti's benefit, because uh, I believe he is uh, uh, sympathetic to uh, Marxism. Just to talk real briefly about the relationship between Rudolf Steiner, who you know is was german or austrian um, <laughs> uh, and uh and you know had a lot was at kind of like his peak like productivity and influence like right after world war one and had a lot to say about uh about marxism and communism also worth pointing out that and now he was he was persecuted by the nazis i think at, at various points uh hitler called him a jew or like a crypto Jew or, you know, somebody who's like working for Jews to like, you know, spread this bullshit. And I think uh, basically he had to um, uh, close his uh, schools once the Nazis came to power. However, uh, after the Second World War, um, I guess he opened uh, back up. But uh, just reading here, uh, Waldorf schools in East Germany after not too long were closed by the DDR educational authorities who justified this as follows. The pedagogy was based on the needs of children rather than on the needs of society, was too pacifistic, and had failed to structure itself according to pure Marxist-Leninist principles. So, okay, there's that. Also, uh, Waldorf schools like uh, completely exploded across Central and Eastern Europe after the dissolution dissolution of the Soviet Union. Um, and there are a hundred, there are many of them in China now, uh, maybe at least a few dozen, but there was an other article more directly to the source. Uh, there's an interesting little thing that he wrote called Marxism and the threefold society in 1919. I'll just read a little bit from it. You can get a sense maybe of like, I don't know if you want your kids, uh, if you want your little young pioneer children listening to this guy, um, maybe you do. It's not that bad, but okay. Uh, he says that, uh, this is 1919. It is impossible to be free of the social chaos in which Europe is mired. If certain longstanding social demands are made with a distorting lack of clarity. Such a demand, one that prevails in many circles, is contained in Frederick Engel's book, The Evolution of Socialism from Utopia to Science, in which he writes, quote, instead of controlling people, controlling products and production processes must prevail. Many proletarian leaders, as well as the proletarian masses, adhere to this viewpoint. In a certain sense, it is correct. The human relations which have developed in modern states have formed administrative bodies that not only control products and production processes, but also the people engaged in those processes. Economics consists of the management of products and the various production processes. In modern times, it has taken on forms which make it necessary that this management no longer includes controlling people as well. Marx and Engels realized this. They directed their attention to how both capital and human labor are active in economic processes. They felt that modern humanity is striving to go beyond the way the system is organized, for it creates the means for capital to exert power over human labor. It not only serves to manage and control products and production, it also provides the excuse for controlling people. From this, Marx and Engels concluded that controlling people must be excluded from the economic processes. They were right. For modern life does not permit that human beings be treated as mere appendages of objects and production processes, and that they be included in the control of same. Marx and Engels believed, however, that the matter could be resolved by simply excluding the control of human beings from the economic process and leaving only a newly purified management organized by the state. They did not realize that in the old way there is something that organizes relations between people which cannot be left unorganized. They, simply, they will not simply organize themselves if detached from the old way. Nor did they see that the source for the organization and control of products and branches of production is found in capital. Through the detour of capital, the human spirit manages the economy. 
By managing goods and production, however, one does not nurture the human spirit, which always creates anew, and which must provide new forces to the economy if it is not to ossify and eventually crumble. What Marx and Engels saw was correct. The control, that the control of the economy should not include the control over men, and that capital, which serves the economy, should not acquire power over the human spirit, which it needs to show it the way. But their fateful error was to believe that both human relations and management of the economy, economy by the human spirit would somehow continue when they are no longer administered by the economy itself. The purging of the economy, that is, limiting it to the management of products and production processes, is only possible if accompanied by something that takes the place of the old system of control and something else which enables the human spirit to be the real leader of the economic process. This role is provided by the concept of the threefold social organism. An independent cultural spiritual organization will supply the economy with the spiritual forces it needs if it limits itself to the management and control of goods and production processes. And the rights sector of the social organism, the political state, when separated from the cultural and economic spheres, will be able to democratically govern human relations in such a way that no individual, through capacities or economic influence, will have power over others. Marx and Engels' viewpoint in respect to the demand for a reformation of economic life was correct, but one-sided. They didn't see that economic life can only be free if an independent rights sector and an independent cultural sphere are placed alongside it. Which form, which form economic life must take in the future can only be seen when we are clear that the capitalistic economic orientation in which economic power controls human relations must be replaced by a spiritual one. The demand for an economy that is only occupied by producing goods can never be realized alone. Whoever advocates this wants to create an economy which has thrown off what is necessary for its existence and expects it to continue to exist without it. Under different living conditions, but from profound experience, Gotha wrote two things which are applicable to many social demands of our times. The first is, a deficient truth works for a while. Instead of complete illumination, though, a blinding falsehood suddenly enters. The world is satisfied, and centuries are deceived. The second is, generalizations and extreme arrogance are the path to terrible harm. Truthfully, Marxism, having learned nothing from the conditions of our times, is a deficient truth, which, despite this, has an effect on the proletarian worldview. But after the catastrophic First World War, instead of being applicable to the true demands of the times, it has become a blinding falsehood, which must be prevented from deceiving centuries. The wish to prevent it is the inclination of those who recognize the harm that the proletariat is rushing into because of this deficient truth, from which have arisen generalizations, the arrogant supporters of which reject as utopia and everything that is trying to replace their truly utopian generalizations with the realities of life. Um, and uh, there's a note here at the end, which is kind of interesting, editor's note. The treatment of people to be controlled as objects in the economic process was confirmed in the early 60s by the Friedman-oriented Chicago School, which defined the, quote, labor market in which human labor is bought and sold as though it were an object, a modified form of slavery. <laughs> so okay i guess okay. Uh, i guess uh uh he uh, predicted i don't know um yeah so i mean he i guess ended up being a kind of a somewhat sympathetic to marxism but ultimately kind of against it the threefold uh theory that he talks about the threefold society is basically the idea that you would have like a culture and spiritual uh, kind of sphere of society and then you would have an economic sphere and then a rights-based political sphere 
And the idea would be to like balance the powers of all three. And in his conception, uh, theocracy is what happens when you tilt too far to the spiritual side Mm -hmm. and it dominates the others. And uh, state socialism, communism is an example of when you let the political state have supremacy over the other two and then of course you have like bourgeois like american capitalism western capitalism if you let the economic sphere uh basically dominate everything so his like idea i guess uh i would assume that to some extent this is like i don't know whether this idea is like operating in waldorf schools to this day but that seemed to be like at the crux of his philosophy it was like oh you got to balance all these things it also sounds a little new agey and a little hippie but i think i mean i think he also his emphasis on like the spiritual component and how uh yeah. I, uh, I i think it's not i i wouldn't totally um you know gulag him for all of his critiques of uh the way marxists were like uh, yeah. approach, mm-hmm. the way they were kind of employing those like those uh those observations by marx and angles and thinking that uh if you just control the production process i mean i think you saw it even with communists in the 20th century like mao realizing that like oh like pedagogy and uh thought reform you know things like that um and like political education and like education through practice and all those things were like really really important and you couldn't just like take over the commanding heights and then like have a communist society you know there was like a lot of uh, deeper work that needed deeper things that need to be balanced out and like you needed to replace if you're going to take away kind of the the i guess maybe the the spiritual conduit or dry or engine inside of capitalism you know for all of its ills you need to replace it with something else that like gives meaning and blah 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 and that that's going to be found in a kind of creative spiritual dimension right yeah I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it's still, I mean, but then him talking about how Ariman's going to come back and like, you know, um, yeah, and how the, you know, like, to, like, I mean, at least he is kind of anti Ariman and like, I kind of like, in a way under like, you know, it's kind of interesting how he's like, you know, we need to, uh, I mean, I feel like it's a, it's a maybe a legitimate view that he's like, we need to, uh, you know, prepare ourselves for Arhaman and, like, uh, study the secret science so that we can watch out. But, like, a lot of it is pretty sus. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, like, we need to acquire powers from Arhaman. It's kind of like Saruman, like, stuff a little bit. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. we, we must join with him. Like, <laughs> uh, like we, uh, we have to, like, use... We got to go to the devil to beat the devil. Um, uh-huh. It's... Yeah, a little bit like eh, I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, I I I I'd yeah. say you know there's other things to look into with, with him, but I I would uh, uh, I would encourage yes, you I've to do. I've been going down a rabbit hole of like reading about Arhaman and gnomes. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's interesting how like uh, you know he like is talking about the decline of the earth, and that's just an important teaching having to do with the the rise of Arhaman. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, if the, for instance, if this lack of enthusiasm in human souls at the present time for the concept of spiritual science were to persist, the first impulse towards the rigidification of the earth would emanate from the souls of men themselves and their apathy, their indolence and love of ease. If you reflect that this rigidification is the aim of the archimonic powers, you will not be surprised the compression, the feeling that life is becoming granite-like, is one of the experiences that must be undergone the struggle for the wisdom of the future. 
Um, and, hmm. uh, yes, it's, uh, the idea of the air, like we talked about, you know, like certain beings, like birds, move through the mm-hmm. air, gnomes move through the earth, we're all becoming gnomes in this harmonic age, you know, uh, oh my God. he, he, uh, even, there's even a lecture where he talks about gnomes. Gnomes laugh at us to scorn an account of the groping, struggling understanding with which we manage to grasp one thing or another, whereas they know, have no need at all to make use of thought. They have direct perception of what is comprehensible in the world. They are particularly ironical when they notice the efforts people have to make to come to this or that conclusion. Why should they do this to the gnomes? Why ever should people think themselves, sorry, give themselves so much trouble to think things over? We know everything we look at. People are so stupid to the gnomes. They must think mm-hmm. things over. Uh, and must, uh, he <laughs> says, uh, lu- uh, thinking is luciferic, actually, uh, in uh, his yeah. other things. So maybe. Yeah, uh, he does. But, like, not necessarily yeah, a bad thing, but it is luciferic. Uh, like, well, it's, yeah, it's necessary, but kind, yeah, we don't want too much of it. We need to get it from him, and he's bad but Mm -hmm. and it was necessary but yeah i don't know like uh and he Mm. does love goethe and he says goethe had nothing luciferic in his thinking but if there's not enough luciferic stuff then you'll be chauvinistic which is interesting Uh, okay Okay. uh because lucifer is all about unifying the moment you generalize or unify at that moment you are nearing luciferic thinking if you were to contemplate each human individual each single plant each single animal each single stone in itself alone having in mind the one single object, not classifying into genera or species, not generalizing in your thought, then you would be little prone to luciferic thinking. But anyone who were to attempt such a thing, even as a child, would not ever get beyond the lowest class in any modern school. I don't know. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so, so yeah. Madrasa, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but like, uh, no, for no, sure. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, like, uh, you know, there, there's a uh, just the, 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 there is, there is pushback out there against, uh, and I, I even just looked on like a review of a, uh, of, of a, uh, what's it called? Yeah, Waldorf School, uh, in the United States, and it has uh, like mostly positive reviews, but also a few like very, very negative ones. Uh, there's, yeah, there's like three or four. Uh, five, uh, the school is inflexible and dogmatic in its approach. Uh, kids get bullied. Um, they uh, not good for special needs children. But then other people are like, yes, it's amazing. Like, there's so many cool, like, wonderful things about it. I guess one study um, uh, conducted by Cal State Sacramento, uh, researchers outlined numerous theories and ideas prevalent throughout Waldorf curricula that were patently pseudoscientific and steeped in magical thinking. These included the ideas that animals evolved from humans, that human spirits are physically incarnated into, quote, soul qualities that manifested themselves into various animal forms, and that the current geological formations on Earth have evolved through so-called Lumerian and Atlantean epochs, and that the four kingdoms of nature are mineral, plant, animal, and man. All of these are directly contradicted by mainstream scientific knowledge and have no basis in any form of controversial uh, scientific studies. Um, and I guess, uh, yeah, like some people, uh, there's uh, the, the, things good, about magnetism. Oh. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, very, uh, everywhere you will find that materialistic science describes matters as follows. The plant takes root in the ground. Above the ground, it develops its leaves, finally unfolding its blossoms. Within the blossoms, the stamens and the seed bud. Now, usually from another plant, the pollen from the anthers, from the pollen vessels, is carried over to the germ, which is then fructified. 
and through this the seed of the new plant is produced. The germ is regarded by the fe as the female element, and what comes from the stamens as the male. Indeed, matters cannot be regarded otherwise as long as people remain fixed in materialism, for then this process really does look like a fructification. This, however, it is not. In order to gain insight into the process of fructification, that is to say the process of reproduction in the plant world, we must be conscious that in the first place it is from the great chemist, the undines, uh, it is from what they bring about in the plants, and from what the sylphs bring about, those are the forest spirits, uh, mm. that the plant form arises, the ideal plant form which sinks into the ground and is preserved by the gnomes. It is there below this plant form. And there within the earth, it is now guarded by the gnomes after they have seen it, after they have looked upon it. The earth becomes the mother womb for what thus seeps downwards. This is something quite different from what is described in materialistic science. I don't understand why Noah Berlatsky, like, finds this so much more offensive than the idea that, like, God, like, is in, like, all these processes that, like, you know, are, <laughs> uh, as we currently understand them. Uh, like, fact why check, you know, like, fact check. Yeah. Uh, it's not offensive not. to me to believe that intermediary daemons, like, are controlling <laughs> the wind and the rain. But if you say that, like, there is God, that's a uh, fact check. Like, uh, you know, like, um, uh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, Wal uh, also, Waldorf Education also has a lot of links with uh, UNESCO, which was founded, I believe, by uh, Julian Huxley, Aldous Huxley's brother. Hmm. Mm, yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, uh, not to, know. like, discourage you too much from this. Like, if you've investigated the school on yourself, like, you'd know better. But, I mean, I don't know what you expected for, uh, for us to say about this guy. <laughs> like, uh, you, uh, like you, know, you knew what you were going to get. We're only yeah, dog parents. Uh, we're not uh, parents. So, yeah, we're, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. But I hope. Uh, I, hope I mean, I told you what I would be doing bit. with my own child, or strong, like heavily trying. Yeah, Madrasa. Uh, um, yeah, Madrasa. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's yeah. my standard recommendation, but uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I can't say which way I would go yet. You know, would I retreat back into the reactionary, uh, you know, bosom of a Catholic education for my own children? Um, where at least I, you know, you kn better the psyop you know than the one you don't. I don't know. Um, uh, but good luck with that, uh, Parenti. Yes, good <laughs> um, luck. I'm sure yeah. whatever decision you make will be the right one. You know their situation the best. Exactly. Um, uh, yes. It's your lived experience. Uh, go, go get them. Um, and just, yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, okay. well, maybe if you have a PTA meeting, just f bring up Arherman and ask uh, what they think. <laughs> uh, you know. Yeah. When can he Keep be expected? Yeah, to incarnate in the West. Yeah. It's uh, we got three minutes, fourteen seconds, <laughs> three hours, fourteen. Ask, ask who uh, who the who the gnomes work for? Who the gnomes work for? <laughs> who do they work uh, for? Indeed. Yeah. Yes. Are they jinn? Um, Why aren't they learning about jinn? Etc. I mean, in Islam, we don't believe that jinn are like uh, necessary for these, uh, you know, natural processes. We don't really think angels are even. Like angels have certain offices, but like, uh, you know, as the Quran says, like Allah is the one who like causes the plants to grow and things like that. You know, and He does so mm -hmm. by the processes that we observe and understand. Like, it's there's mm -hmm. not like any need for these kind of like, you know, uh, shirky mediaries. Like I don't <laughs> like. Uh, 
I'm just saying, like, uh, why? Like, uh, very bizarre, but whatever. Uh, Yeah, there you go. Yeah, okay. Uh, Well, all right. We we finally did it. Uh, We got to... Yeah, Q&A 4, done. So, yeah, next time uh, it's going to be one episode. Q&A 5 is going to be one episode, (laughs) inshallah, uh, you know, uh, but... Yeah, I think uh, we'll you know these questions just hit the they they hit some nerves and they definitely uh, hit some nerves. There was some... like a Mark Fisher question, you know, etc. There was there was a chance to whine about like Hollywood and film. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. There was like the a reptoid related one. John D. Yeah. yeah, exactly. There was a lot of, of meaty stuff here. Yeah, so exactly. Uh, but that's yeah, what mm. the, that, that that's what we're here for to. Uh, take it so um if anybody wants to join the grotto uh via patreon you can make the next month's one even longer and uh we will answer your question so we will get um, to it yes we we will will get to it eventually we'll do it yeah 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 by golly we won't give up but uh yeah yeah. by golly we will yes yes we will get out of here but watch out for um, gnomes Watch, uh, out, watch for out for gnomes. Jin watch out for gnomes. Appearing sometimes Pole. in the form of a gnome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, watch out for uh, uh, Arimon. Yeah. Sockloss, yeah. Arimon, Yaldabaoth as usual. Uh, yeah. Uh, don't trust acid. Don't take a bunch of LSD and try to like form a vanguard party with some gin or something to recreate yeah, the 60s. It's not going to work. Exactly. Don't like yeah, uh, like worship the Claxton men or whatever. Just just relax, don't, just chill. Don't don't reinvent uh, yourself every morning when you wake up. Yeah. Just chill out and yeah, get, exactly. Get going, don't, you know, do your yeah, thing. Yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. You don't need to rebuild yourself. Just get out of bed uh, and get on your typewriter and punch it like a Tommy gun and write yeah. something that isn't about how we need to balance the R harmonic impulse with the Christic <laughs> impulse and the Luciferic impulse and just yeah just yeah well just get out of bed just go pray just go pray uh to Allah and not to a gnome uh mm-hmm. yeah Word. and uh right. yeah so uh yeah that's uh that's it for now and uh remember all those things and uh stay vigilant peace in this age of darkness we have blotted out the sun worshipped our creations and what we'd become in our narrow-mindedness, we blink at shortened sight Praise the works of our own and follow him We gathered up the minerals, built juggernaut machines To look for God inside what we created Atoms we collided at you Genders and experiments When will we learn? You've been gone so long You're still far ahead of your time Gone so long One hundred years ahead of your time Years before my time You showed a way out of the maze Souls despondent and disheartened Revelations poured through it